Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, April 26th, 843-661-0937. Today is a monumental day in the fact that it's happened. Can we say uh, the title of this show will be Viva Elon? Um, <laughs> sure. And you've been on the Elon bus for a while. Yeah, the, the Elon electric bus yeah, for a while. Um, not not the internal combustion engine, Ooh. the Elon electric bus for a while. And it finally happened. I think I called this about a month or so ago uh, when it began toying around with the idea of a um, uh, buying a stake in the company, becoming a board member. And um, what a luxury it must be when your financial situation in life allows you to say, I don't know if I just want to be on the board. Maybe we buy the whole thing, you know, and now at the tune of 40. Now, there's some discrepancy in the numbers here. Um, the Wall Street Journal reported this morning, ah, late yesterday afternoon, um, that the deal is $54.20 per share, valued around $44 billion, and that's with a B, and dollars. Twitter would become a private company on completion of this deal. But when you look in the specifics, it's $25.5 billion of debt financing and $21 billion of personal equity. That would be the down payment. Um, so Elon's putting in $21 billion of his own, liquidating some Tesla stock, um, $25.5 billion, the majority of which is financed by Morgan Stanley. There's Bank of American Barclays, from what I've read, that are participating in this. Um, the other big boys... Uh, by that, I mean J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs are on the Twitter side of this. There will be um, enormous fees generated by this transaction. Oh, good for them. So, um, and, and the only thing I could explain, I mean, look, the deal is $44 billion. The total money in play is $46.5 billion. So there's $2.5 billion there. Is it fees? I mean, I don't have any well, idea. What's a couple billion between friends? Sure. I mean, I mean when you're talking about 40 or $50 billion. But, um, but at the closure... I guess at the closing of this financing ordeal, um, Elon Musk will now be the sole proprietor of Twitter. Um, now, now there, there's some misunderstandings here. Um, Twitter is not the rival to Facebook. Twitter's not the rival to Google. Um, Twitter is kind of flatlined for an extended period of time. It's not it's seen a lot of usage. Um, the stock has not increased in price. It's not really monetized itself the way some people imagine i went back and tried to dig into some of the financing because uh, musk is not i don't buy that he's just doing this because he wants to be a good um you know free speech absolutist i mean he's putting one quarter but that's what personal. he says i mean i understand what he says but um but he's a business guy and he's putting one of every four dollars he's ever made in his life ever accumulated in his life into a deal he's paying about six or seven billion dollars more than most people believe it's worth um, I just don't buy that he's doing this in, a, in an altruistic sort of way. Now, I don't know why he's doing it, and he's much brighter than I, but um, but some have tried to compare this to Google and Facebook. In other words, Twitter, Google, Facebook um, kind of dominate uh, the disseminating of information, the consuming of information. But when you look at Google and Facebook, stick with me for a second here. Um, Google generated $257 billion in sales last year. I mean, it's ad revenue. Google, $257 billion. Um, the company's market cap is about $1.7 trillion. Facebook uh, generated about $117 billion in revenue. Uh, its market cap is $583 billion. Google, excuse me, Twitter only generated about $5 billion 
in revenue last year. Therefore, the company's valued somewhere around $36 billion. It must paid $44 billion, a premium of $8 billion. But that's what happens when you want something really bad and have the, um, the do-re-mi to, uh, to make it happen. So when you say, well, now Twitter, you know, now someone, and this, I heard two people say this yesterday. You're wrong. Trust me here. You're wrong. Now a conservative owns Twitter. Elon Musk is not a conservative. Let's be happy that we, um, we converged. Our, our, our paths crossed at this exact moment in time. Um, conservatives have historically believed they don't get fair treatment on uh, Twitter. You don't. I mean, you absolutely do not. Uh, now, now, we may find some of the um, some of the algorithms because in his press release yesterday, Elon Musk said, free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy, and Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital of the future of humanity are debated. I also want to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features, making the algorithms open source to increase trust, defeating the spam bots, and authenticating all humans. Twitter has tremendous potential. I look forward to working with a company and the community of users to unlock it. I mean, that's his official statement. So he does mention algorithms and some of the spam bots. He does mention authenticating all humans. Um, I, I thought Elon was kind of one of these um, transhumanist <laughs> eugenists. What is a human? Yeah, there, there you go. A human plus AI. Uh, humans do dumb things. If we could only improve humans with, um, with, with eugenics and uh, transhumanism, which is basically eugenics. I mean, it's kind of, it's this, it's this modern speak. It's, uh, it's Silicon Valley's way of saying um, eugenics. Uh, but but I, I just don't buy. I don't buy that he's doing this in an altruistic sort of way. And I don't believe he's investing one of every $4 he has to his name um, in the name of just making the world a better place. I'm sorry. I mean, I just don't buy that. I think he's genuine and sincere about his um, advocacy for sp- free speech. I don't think there's any question that Elon Musk is a free speech absolutist, but he's a business guy. And he's always figured out a way to, um, the, the entrepreneurial innovation, I think, supersedes anything else he's motivated by. I think I've by. heard him in a quote say, it's not about the money. Well, he this said is that. not a financial thing. Well, I mean, of course he's, I mean, I'm not saying it's solely and totally about the money. I've got a theory. I mean, it's early in the morning. Uh, a lot of listeners haven't even joined us here um, yet this morning. Here's my theory. You ready? Um, General Motors, let's say the legacy motors, the, the legacy car companies spent about $1,000 on R&D per automobile. That includes um, Chevrolet, Cadillac, um, Ford, Lincoln, uh, Toyota, Hyundai. I mean, I'd call the legacy manufacturing, the likely suspects. They spent about... Um, three, excuse me, about $1,000 per vehicle on R&D, research and development. Tesla spent about $3,000 on R&D. So Tesla spends about three times on R&D as the legacy manufacturers do. But guess what Tesla does not do? The the legacy manufacturers spend about two grand per vehicle on marketing. Tesla spends zero, nary a dime on marketing. Could Twitter be the marketing arm for Tesla? When you do the math, and I'm getting out of the weeds here, I'm trying to get ahead of my, I'm trying to play Elon. I'm trying to, th- what, what is this guy? I mean, a guy with an 80 IQ needs to be careful trying to figure out what a guy with 160 <laughs> IQ is doing. I mean, he's twice as smart as, I, at least twice as smart as I am. 
But um, but I'm just trying to play through this and trying to think through this. And um, and you know, I'm not a an entrepreneurial Silicon Valleyist, but I'm no moron when it comes to business. And I've always tried to kind of okay, let's see what what may be happening here. But think about this, Rev. General Motors spent three billion dollars last year in marketing. The industry, and I'm talking about the legacy builders of the legacy manufacturers spent somewhere between 15 and 20 billion dollars what if elon musk takes tesla and as a a cash flow mechanism uh, in other words you got to cash flow the business uh, we know that the um the number of subscribers excuse me the number of users is um is flatline but what if he takes the the universe of twitter users today and markets tesla in the if it's a private company now. I mean, he can do with whatever he chooses to do with it. I mean, he can actually close the door as soon as this deal um, consummates. Elon Musk can close the door and say, "I'm shutting it down." I mean, I bought it for forty-four billion bucks. I've got all this money. Doesn't matter to me. It's not an economic decision. I think Twitter's bad for the human consciousness, and I'm shutting Twitter down. Why? Because it's mine, and I can. Um, but I just got to believe that he's, he's smart enough. We know this. We know he's bright enough. If I've thought of this, rest assured he has. And and I'd read somewhere a couple of years ago that um, Wall Street was k- kind of aggravated with uh, Tesla because they weren't allocating any funds to marketing, whether it's old school marketing, I'm talking radio, television, newspaper, or digital marketing, Tesla's... Um, Tesla wanted its business to be organic in nature. It's its growth to be organic. You like your Tesla? Yeah, you should go get one. You know, kind of the, um, what do they say? The best advertisement is um, is uh, word of mouth. I mean, you know, Rev tells yeah, you, you see Mike one and, and Mike, you want it. Yeah, you want it. You tell other people how good it is. That is the best advertisement. That's, that's gold, to be honest. But when you think about, you know, the numbers and the math, and the business side of this equation, I think an, a, an immediate benefit could be Tesla um, utilizing hmm. Twitter as its marketing arm, not not exclusively, because I don't think Tesla could generate the revenue necessary to put um, Twitter where it needs to be in comparison to Google and and Facebook. Because when we say these big tech companies, we almost insinuate that Google, Facebook, and Twitter are kind of sort of the same. They're not. I mean, they're very influential, no doubt about it. They move the meter, no doubt about it. But Twitter moves the meter far less significantly than Facebook or Google, and it's reflected in some of the values of the company. Once again, Google, uh, $257 billion in annual revenue with a market cap of $1.7 trillion. Facebook, $117 billion in annual revenue, market cap of $583 billion. Twitter, Annual revenue five billion with a, a market cap of thirty six billion that turns into forty four billion because the richest man in the world really wanted it and um, so so there you know I, I don't know where we're heading from here but it is an exciting moment if you're on the right side of the political debate and you believe that these tech companies Google and um, and Facebook and Twitter have had um, algorithmic nuances that disallow conservative thought people on the right side to have a fair shake at some of these um some of these debates uh we shall see what changes when it comes to that um it is a little fun watching some of the liberal heads explode well, I, mean, I, I went back and read i bet i read 200 tweets yesterday from uh just the liberal left oh, yeah. and i mean they're 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 not free they're not free speechers i mean they're free speakers they're just not 
I mean, they're abs- there's nothing about Elon Musk that leads you to believe he's conservative. I mean, there's not. I mean, he's very odd. He's kind of an island. He's with us sometimes, and sometimes he's not. And us, I'm talking about conservative America. There, there are times he is your warrior, your soldier, your cowboy. I mean, today is one of those days that there is no doubt about it that we got a bit lucky. We got unbelievably fortunate that we believe Twitter censors those of us who have conservative worldviews and, and then by and large vote Republican and support Donald Trump. Uh, but this is not about that. I mean, this is a free speech absolutist who's um, for, for a moment in time happened to be our savior, our warrior, our, our cowboy. Um, let's celebrate because I can assure you this, a month or two or three from now, you, you'll be dramatically disappointed because he's going to do things um, that aren't consistent with the conservative worldview. He just is. On free speech and on Twitter, he's with us. I think on Facebook, he's with us. I think on Google, he's with us because he doesn't believe Google gives conservative thought a, a fair shake. I don't think he believes that Facebook um, gives Twitter, excuse me, gives um, the, the conservative American a fair shake. Um, it, it's kind of interesting. Had Musk, what if Musk had the money to buy Facebook? I mean, Facebook's market cap is $583 billion. I mean, would he have bought Facebook or Google? I mean, if Musk had $3 trillion, he doesn't, but if he did, I mean, hypothetically, would he have passed on Twitter in preference to um, Facebook or or Google? Interesting. D- don't have any idea. But, um, you know, he says that he's going to go, go to work um, diligently to try and put in place a team that can address some of the issues at, at Twitter. Uh, it'll be very, very interesting to follow. But, but I just go back to the, the amount of money that legacy, I mean, if you think about it, he's spending $3,000 per vehicle on research and development. The legacy builders are spending about a grand. So he's spending three times what they are on R&D. They're spending about two grand on every vehicle sold in the name of marketing. He's spending absolutely zero. Will he use Twitter? to launch sort of an advertising campaign on behalf of Tesla, uh, SpaceX, for that matter. Um, Tesla, more than any, SpaceX is not a main street or a mainstream business. I mean, it's, it's very niche I mean, Tesla's niche no doubt about it, but it is the electric car, and we seem to be gravitating toward um, more and more Americans purchasing electric cars. So, yeah, I mean, it's a big day, uh, $46.5 billion total. Um, $44 billion in purchasing. I don't know if the $2.5 billion is fees. I don't have any idea what that $2.5 billion is for. That's a lot of money for a couple of weeks' worth of work if, indeed, Citibank and J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley, uh, you know, Barclays, Bank of America, they get their fair share, rest assured. But for them to line up the financing, buying and selling, uh, to do all the legalities necessary to make a deal like this work, I mean, they, you know, th- this is a... um. I mean, this is high-flying finance, no question about it. This is not, you know, what will you take for your used car? <laughs> or, you know, uh, wonder what your uncle wants for the farm uh, that, that he inherited from your from your great-grand. I mean, th- this is far more complex and sophisticated than that. And, and once again, I am total, totally speculating that, um, that there's some play here in the short run with, with Tesla benefiting from not having an advertising budget to now all of a sudden have an available, you got a guy that owns majority of Tesla, you got a guy that owns Twitter, 
Uh, you got to believe that if Twitter is the de facto uh, public square, you certainly want Tesla to be out playing in that universe. So, um, yeah, it's just very interesting. If I were a GM or a Ford guy this morning, I'm not, but if I were, I'd be a little concerned. I mean, I, I would have played that out in my head. And once again, I got a busy head syndrome, and I can't help but think about things like this. Um, and, and I have nothing to base that on other than complete and total speculation. It's interesting you mentioned that he has zero marketing budget for those uh, for the Tesla cars. But how much, how, how often is Tesla talked about in the news, on talk radio? We talk about it all the time. It's free advertising. Oh, it is. I mean, it, but, and it's organic. I mean, that, that's what he's always right. said. You know, if we build an, a, a revolutionary electric car, there will be enough conversations had. We will not have to buy you know, traditional media or digital media. We won't have to to advertise. But now he's got uh, at his disposal whatever it is he wants to do. I'm not saying he will. And he may have a completely different plan than this, but um, but he owns Twitter. He owns Tesla. Tesla doesn't advertise. He's got a, a medium now that could effectively advertise however he chose to do it. I mean, he can, he can build this from scratch. It's not like, um, let me talk to the Google board or let me talk to the, to the Facebook board. I mean, he can actually close the door and say, I'm having a board meeting right now. <laughs> you know, me, this ham sandwich and Diet Pepsi are having this board meeting right now. And here's what we come out on the other side deciding we're going to do uh, with this company. Must today is who most of us wish we were. You know, to, to act on the impulse of one another. I mean, how many of you want to? That'd be an interesting question. If you had enough money to buy something that irks you, grates you, <laughs> to fire everybody in the room or to, or to change the model, what what company would it be? Uh, that would be kind of an interesting. Um, I'd buy Clemson and shut it down. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We've got a couple of calls. Don't want to get too far behind. Let's take a break. Hang in there. We'll get to you as soon as we get back on the other side. 843 is our number. You mean we shouldn't be counting on Elon Musk to be a conservative warrior looking out for us today, <laughs> <laughs> not tomorrow or the next? No, I mean, he's not a conservative warrior at all. I mean, he, he, he's, a, he's an odd cat. I mean, he just sees a lot of different things on a lot of different days. Um, he's, a, he's a visionary. He's an entrepreneur. He's an innovator. Um, it's kind of interesting. The irony of this, 90% of the Teslas ever sold, um, the Tesla owner doesn't like Elon Musk today. They'll like him again <laughs> in a month or two. They just don't like him oh, the today. <laughs> but but he's, not, I mean, he's not a conservative. He's just not. Today, the stars align, and he's our guy. Uh, a month or two or three from now, he'll probably do something that we scratch our heads and say, that's the same guy that bought Twitter. Yep. That's exactly who he is. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jeff in Florence. Hello, Jeff. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, Jeff. Hey, so uh, you, I, you hit the nail on the head with Elon Musk. Um, he, uh, this is about uh, message and marketing, uh, but it's, I really don't think it's about Tesla. When you look at his businesses that he owns and what he said about his other businesses, um, that's where his efforts with Twitter, I believe, are going to come into play. Did you look at Solar City? Are you familiar with that? I am. Version? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a company that uh, when you talk about the future and when you think about Elon Musk, you think about, like, he wants to go to Mars. He wants to, you know, make us a um, 
two-planet habitable species. Uh, he is not a conservative. He's a visionary. Uh, this has zero to do with free speech and everything to do with business. He's going to take Twitter and then following, and he's going to push his Solar City. He'll push his Neuralink company. He will push his energy generation company and his battery companies. That's what this is about. Tesla's going to be fine. He doesn't need advertisement. He's proved it. He's never made a profit at Tesla, though, Jeff, outside of remarketing green credits. Yeah, he has. So so think about that. He's never made a profit. Uh, Ken, you, you, you said you're pretty astute at business. How much profit do you want to show a business makes? Well, I mean, you, you've got to eventually, if you got shareholders, I mean, a private business is very different, but but a shareholder, uh, you got to, you got to, there's got to be some expected rate of return to the shareholder for them to continue to be optimistic about investing when you get asset appreciation, stock appreciation. Now, now please understand, when I say I'm an astute business guy, I built truck beds in a town with no stoplights. <laughs> you know, so Starlink and, and some of these other, I mean, so, you know, I mean, th- these are a bit above my pay grade, not a bit above my pay grade, but it's still business. There, there's a fundamental to business, whether it's small business, big business, mom and pop, corporate America. I, I don't disagree with you when you say that it's very much a play on marketing because Elon Musk is the consummate marketer. He understands um, the, the visionary strategies necessary to, um, and I think you would agree to this, Jeff, the majority of his businesses, whether he likes to embrace this or not, that they are agenda-driven. I mean, they are transformational in nature. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, he is He is a Howard Hughes, hopefully, who doesn't go nuts. Um, <laughs> you know? So um, I, I'll say that, like, um, it, you don't become worth $277 billion by companies not making money that you're running and, and founding and forming. Yeah. I mean, he is making money. His companies make money. He doesn't want to show that they make money. That's a problem with his investors, uh, which he has battles with them that are, you know, very public. Um, and so now he's got a nice little forum for that uh, battle. But I, I will say um, this. So I, I think that uh, Elon Musk's vision for the future is, is one we can't, I, I couldn't imagine or get in front of where he will take us. He's, he's the thing of science fiction. Um, he, he thinks on a different level than I, I, I can't think of anybody who uh, is as bright as he is. In a weird um, way, let me I ask you this, like, and I'd love to get your take yeah. on this. In a weird way, is he our Thomas Jefferson? I mean, Jefferson was a oh, thinker. Obviously, absolutely. he was not, but I mean, he was an inventor. He was a, I mean, he, he was a, a philosopher. He was a theorist. I mean, when I look at Jefferson, and Jefferson didn't try to think about colonizing Mars because that was in, in the late 1700s, and he had another task at hand. But but he was someone who thought at a much deeper and more visionary level than nearly everybody else around him. That is a similar trait and characteristic. Yeah. It's it, to 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 understand um, to what he has meant to the U.S. space program and to further uh, our efforts. Like you look at the SLS system that NASA has paid Boeing and uh, and uh, I think um, McDonnell Douglas or that Boeing has another partner in that program, Northrop Grumman. They've spent in excess of twenty billion dollars, and they can't launch a rocket. 
Sorry, Jeff, we lost you on that last. I know what he's saying. I mean, yeah, th- th- they have absolutely um, forced NASA to be better at what it is NASA does. I mean, NASA is a government-run agency that, that um, you know, can or cannot hold itself accountable. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate the call. Sorry we lost him there at the last second. What is Jeff doing up at 6.30 in the morning? He's a Democrat. Democrats don't get up till about 8 or 8.30 in the morning. I'm proud of Jeff this morning, uh, getting up, uh, uh, try, trying to match the um, the intensity of an Elon Musk. And I want to say it again. Musk is our favorite son this morning because he's bought a company that we believe never treated conservative Americans fairly. But he's not a conservative. Please understand, today the stars align. Tomorrow and the next, uh, they may not. But he plays, and I think Jeff's exactly right, um, Musk plays at a level and a, and a depth that very few of us can begin to comprehend. I mean, to think about uh, what Jeff was starting to say there, I don't know what he was starting to say, but I thought about the fact that Musk figured out or helped figure out how to land those booster rockets back on ships and reuse them. Well, I mean, he upped the game and made NASA better. Right. I mean, he forced NASA to be better at whatever it is um, NASA does. Let's go to the phone. Here's Dale in Florence. Hello, Dale. Morning, gentlemen. Um and, you know, it's pretty interesting. He's not hes not a Republican, and I don't believe he's a Democrat either, but he is, by and large, the face of electric vehicle use on this planet. I mean, I know other companies have them, and they all advertise, and he does not. That's pretty interesting. That's a real good topic you brought up this morning, Ken. But uh, he, he really is the face of electric motor vehicles on this planet, the whole planet. Nobody thinks, when you think electric vehicle, nobody thinks of Chevy Volt or whatever the other ones are. You automatically think uh, of, a, of a Tesla. And, uh, and it's interesting, too, if you do want to, to do some advertising, you're looking at what's available out there. You look at, at, at streaming, uh, they said that, that Netflix has lost, I don't know how many subscribers, they had to shut down CNN Plus. Boy, who saw that coming? Um, these streaming services are not doing as well. And if you are going to pick a place to do some advertising, and here's the thing. You know, Elon Musk, he's a genius. I've always said this about people whose minds aren't wired like most of ours are. You know, most of us have an IQ between, what, 100 and 115 or 20 probably, and we go to work every day and we do, you know, we're regular people. You get these actors, actresses, artists of any kind, singers, uh, people that are really intelligent, Elon Musk. Uh, their brains just aren't wired the same way ours are. Who knows what they're thinking? Because they're thinking so far outside the box, they can't even see the box. And we're sitting here trying to figure out what's making them go. So, But it's really interesting. I, I, I really do think that, that you're onto something with the whole uh, – him getting some kind of message out there. I don't know what the message is or, or for what company yet, but I think I think that's a pretty good bet. He didn't he didn't just do it to uh, be, because he was dissatisfied with the amount of uh, free speech going on. I really don't believe that. He's got a, he's got a, a good plan, and in the next couple of months we'll figure out what it is. You guys have a good day. Thank you, Dale. Appreciate it. I think Elon Musk is a free speech absolutist. I mean, I don't think that's a fraud. I don't think that's a farce. I mean, I think he is an absolute. Uh, believer in free speech. Um, I think Musk is one of these few guys that that kind of sort of thinks you may should be able to yell fire in a crowded theater. That may be going to the extreme, um, but but I don't believe the play is solely about free speech. 
you know, I've read in some of the conservative blogs and some of the, uh, the Nash Review had an article and redstate.com had an article and Breitbart had an article and it was about, you know, the conservative warrior. Uh, the, the unlikely suspect shows up as the conservative warrior and takes on liberal America in, um, in, in the name of stopping censoring or censorship of conservative opinion. To me, that's kind of a byproduct. I mean, that, that's part of this. No question about it, because in his bones, I think he's a free speech absolutist. And I do believe that Twitter censors unfairly and imbalanced uh, in a very imbalanced sort of way. Um, and we got a lot of data that shows that. So I think Musk will expose the algorithms. I think he'll, he'll, he'll let us understand better some of the moderating requirements. And I think we'll find out that Twitter was a very, very liberal-leaning company that did shut down, censor, squelch um, public opinion given by those on the right side of the political equation. I just don't believe he invests one of every $4 to his name to make sure conservative America is allowed to be heard loud and clear. I just don't buy that. I'm sorry. I just don't, you know, those kinds of people don't do those kinds of things. I think Elon Musk is very capable of multitasking. So along with um, liberating conservative America from Twitter censorship, may or may not come uh, the opportunity to market and brand even further Tesla or Spacelink or SpaceX or the Boring Company or some of these other um, innovative. I think, you know, the, Musk takes innovation to a different degree. By that, I mean um, innovative in the most disruptive way. I think that would probably be a, bit of, a better way. You know, you've got a, um, ah, there's kind of two sentiments of people with a lot of money. And I've heard it explained this way. You know, I'm in the get rich mood or mode. I'm in the stay rich mode. I mean, people in my world that have made enormous amounts of money as they get older, they kind of shift gears from the get rich mode to the stay rich mode. I don't think Musk falls into that category. Um, I think he's a disruptor. I think he gets his giggles and kicks from disrupting things that we believe we're always going to be. In other words, nobody will ever invent an electric car that seriously threatens the market domination of Ford, GM, Toyota, and Nissan. Nobody will ever do that. And along comes Musk, and nobody will ever make NASA. Nobody will ever challenge. There'll never be a private space exploration company that rivals or challenges NASA. And I think those are disruptive. They're not just innovative. I mean, obviously, they're innovative. But more than anything, they disrupt the marketplace. That's where I think he finds his joy and satisfaction. Let's go to the phone. And Jeff, I believe, is back with us after dropping off. Hey, Jeff, you there? Yes. Hey, guys. Um, yeah, I just – we agreed a lot. Uh, I don't like that typically. Um, <laughs> but but I'll, I'll say this. Like, if you look at what Elon Musk's vision was to get to Mars, what do you need to have to get there? Transportation. Mm -hmm. That's his SpaceX. What do you need when you have to get there? You have to be able to develop a society that will have a power source. That's his solar city. What do you need to do when you get on Mars? You need to transport around. What do you need to get there? You need a, a, an electric vehicle. You need computers to talk to each other. So you need a satellite company and uplinks like this, the, the satellite system he's developed. Neuralink, you need communications. That's part of it. If you look at every business sector, the boring company, you look at every business that Elon Musk is in, it's all interconnected. Your home, your travel, your transportation, your medical, your communication, your power generation. That's 
Elon Musk, what he's doing. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate that. And I'm as concerned as you are about agreeing as much as we did both <laughs> yeah, yesterday to this. and today. No more conversation about Elon Musk. He's bringing too many Americans together. <laughs> we can't, we're, we're much happier when we're arguing with one another than we are when we're contemplating what one of the, um, the business geniuses of our time is up to. It, it's still pretty hard to fathom that, that a couple of weeks ago, you know, he makes a play. It started with a tweet when someone said, why don't you buy it? And he said, what's it worth? I mean, you know that's not the first time he's thought or considered this, but here we are uh, the day after it appears that the board has agreed to accept the offer of $44 billion. But as much as I'd like to try and convince you this morning that this is about free speech, this is about a, a guy who felt that half of Americans were getting treated unfairly, I do believe that Musk is for free speech. I think he's an absolutist. But, but to suggest that he did this, he spent one of every four dollars uh, he has to his name in the name of liberating those who felt uh, bound to some of the algorithms or moderation requirements of a, a social media site. I, I just don't buy that. I'm sorry. Um, you can, and you're certainly entitled to that. And it is a day to celebrate. I mean, if you're a conservative and you like to tweet and you like to, you know, to go to Twitter to find out your news and, and you would like to see what President Trump has to say on Twitter or the Babylon Bee has to say on Twitter, or, you know, the New York Post has to say on Twitter about Hunter Biden's laptop. I mean, it's a day to be celebratory. No question about it. I mean, it's it's a win. I mean, it's a win. But I just don't believe it's Elon Musk and his primary play. He's very interested. And if you hear him speak much, it's about the plight of man. What is in humanity's best interest? And, um, I mean, it gets out there at times. I mean, I'm not saying the guy's right. I mean, it would be crazy and foolish to believe because he's this much smarter that then all of us, he's never wrong. I mean, he's wrong a lot. I mean, I'm sure he's made mistakes. I mean, it's obvious he's made um, mistakes. And and is he overplaying his hand? That's probably part of the intrigue in this in this kind of unusual story that we're talking about this morning. 843-661-0937. Do want to say this, Mike, before we take our break. There will be conservative radio show host after conservative radio show host after conservative radio show host tell you today that Elon Musk bought Twitter so you could be heard and not censored. I'm not one of those. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Couple of callers are waiting. Let's go there. Steve in Florence. Good morning. You're on. Morning, guys. If I had money, I'd buy Facebook. That way, I wouldn't get banned every seven days. <laughs> but um. If you look at Twitter, like if you bought a building and the first floor is the only thing that's furnished, that's Twitter right now. He can layer that any way he wants. And he has a phone that's supposed to be coming out that I'm kind of looking forward to because I don't like Apple and I'm getting tired of Samsung. Um, that could be integrated with, with his phone for private messaging and all sorts of stuff. And like Samsung right now is run by Google, so you have to have a Google account jump behind get a Twitter account and you can run his pie or I think he's what he's calling Tesla pie. But yeah, you can do a lot with that uh, that company more than just what it is now. Facebook started out as just a little blogging site at the very beginning. Now look at it. So I got Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. I mean there's a lot of uh there's a lot of conversations around, you know, um today's a great day for conservative America, but it's, to me, it's incidental. I mean, it's not that, that is not Elon Musk intent. 
Elon Musk is not, I'm going to repeat this a thousand times today, I'm sure. Elon Musk is not going to commit or expend one of every $4 he has to his name, and he has more than anybody in the world. He's not going to do that to simply liberate conservative America. I mean, he's not one of us. I mean, I think he's a free speech absolutist. Um, I think we believe we get censored on Twitter, but this is much bigger than that. I think we're not giving Elon Musk the credit he deserves if we think he's willing to spend, you know, um, what is it, 65 yeah, $46.5 billion to help us get our word out. But he's not a crusader in that regard. He probably is a crusader, but he's not a crusader in the name of a conservative um, ideology. It just so happened those interests lined up this time, I guess. And right? that's the point I've tried to make in the first hour. I mean, he's our guy today, no doubt about it, uh, that there is no question that the algorithms are stacked. There's no question that some of the moderating requirements are skewed um, to the advantage of liberal America and leftists and those who uh, want certain issues not talked about. There's no doubt that's a reality within the Twitter model. But Elon Musk is not buying Twitter simply to change that. I mean, this is much deeper. Much You're not giving him the credit he deserves if you believe he simply spent, you know, $46.5 billion dollars of his personal wealth so we can say uh, what we choose to say without fear of censorship. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Breeze joins us next. Good morning, Breeze. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, You know, we're uh, talking about free speech, right? Yes, sir. Okay, I thought I may have lost you. I heard something pop off. So we're talking about free speech, and here we are. We live in a state that is uh, controlled supposedly by Republicans, okay? Now, I will go somewhere to make scare a few people. So we had these board members who were conservative for the University of South Carolina. You talk about what you'd buy and change. So you had these board members who were conservative on the University of South Carolina. They basically upset a billionaire our local billionaire at a rich pharmaceutical heiress from Sumter. And then they basically did a coup to get them thrown out. They don't feel too sorry for these guys because they're all pretty wealthy too, maybe not as wealthy as these people. Is that basically what happened, Ken? Uh, to some degree, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying exactly that way, but but to some degree, um the board at U.S. I mean, the board at USC has become very antiquated. I've always felt it needed to be reformed, uh, made smaller. But yeah, I mean, you know, the um, the situation with a couple of female um, wealthy female donors kind of kind of it brought it to a head quicker than we ever imagined it would. Right. Okay. So now, so so you get rid. So it basically turned out that both of these donors are liberal, right? I mean, if you if you question that, all you have to do is look at the Post and Courier, which is a pretty liberal, pretty liberal rag, and it sees that our local billionaire introduced a woman, yeah, at the University of South Carolina, a woman speaker, who is an avowed communist, who was on the FBI's most well, ten most wanted list, that she had bought guns that was that were used uh, to kill a judge or something. And, you know, I guess it was one of these radical weather underground groups or whatever. If I read it, this is a liberal 
lady that spoke was acquitted. But there again, who, who the hell knows what really happened there? But we're definitely talking about a communist. So uh, in the interest of free speech and all that, if you're a graduate from the University of South Carolina and you're talking about that going giving money, well, I wonder if, if this same lady would introduce, say, a Candace Owens to give a speech at the University of South Carolina. Does the University of South Carolina allow any opposing views other than the liberal woke doctrine? Has there ever a conservative Christian speaker at the University of South Carolina? And again, we're supposedly in a red state. Is there ever one? Not that I'm aware. So basically, here we are in a red state where you have liberals basically dictating who's on the board of the university and then also dictating who gets to speak and influence your children's philosophies on life. And and, 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 and we're sitting back paying this university. What does it cost to send a kid to school there a year if you added it all up, about 40 grand, kid? It's, grand? You're getting pretty close. <laughs> I'm trying to do that as we speak. You know, you know what I'm saying? When you start figuring out how much it costs for if you know, if a kid doesn't do anything, doesn't work or anything. So basically you say, you can easily say 35 to 50, right? Correct. So we got people, you and I, people like us, spending 50 grand a year to send our children to a university that Dagold um, basically does everything they can to get any conservative Christian off of their board of trustees. Trustees that also does anything they can to, to quelch free speech, quelch any other dissenting opinions other than their liberal woke communist opinions. And we're supposed and, and, and we're supposed to Dagold on paper that. And it's also supported by taxpayer dollars from a conservative red state, right? I mean, does that not bother anybody other than me? I'd be fine with this lady speaking if they had a counterpoint to it. Sure. And, Breeze, thank you. Uh, yeah, and I know the point you're making. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. And I want to say this. You know, whether whatever Elon Musk's intent was, and I've tried to explain in the past hour, I don't think it's all about free speech. Um, I don't think it's about, I mean, at, at Facebook, it's reported. I mean, nobody knows the exact number, but they believe, um, and I'm talking about some of the, um, some of the analysis that have tried to really understand the Facebook model. They believe that Facebook employs about 15,000 content moderators that are there to, um, I don't know, restrict discussion to basically, um, deem what's misinformation or what's not information. Um, I mean, this is their sensors and they work for, um, what, $25 an hour deciding whether or not Elon Musk can participate in some of these, um, in some of these conversations that the point I've always tried to make, and I believe this, and I think Musk says this, uh, well, I'll go back and read his quote. Exactly. Let me find it here. Um, in a second, um, free speech is not now, once again, I have tried to argue this morning that to me, the, the richest guy in the world doesn't spend a quarter of his wealth in the name of securing free speech. I just don't buy that. I'm sorry, I don't. Um, would he donate a billion dollars to a free speech advocacy group? Yeah. I mean, of course he would. Would he liquidate 
um, 25% of all his Tesla shares to make a $21 billion equity payment so he can finance another $25.5 billion. I don't buy that. I mean, I think there's much more to this than just free speech. But the point Breeze is making does play in to the argument of intellectual diversity or not. Who gets to say what's misinformation? I mean, is it a, is a content moderator at Facebook making $25 an hour drinking the liberal Kool-Aid? Because um, I've always said I've got no problem at all. I am very confident in debating or articulating my worldview, whether it's uh, religion, whether it's economics, whether it's pol- politics, whether it's sports. It doesn't matter to me. I enjoy, I embrace, I relish the opportunity to go back and forth with Jeff or with some of the other listeners that call in to this show, sometime agreeable, sometime not so agreeable. That I think Musk is right about that. And when he says that free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is the digital, I mean, I agree with that. Now, now, whether Twitter is the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated, that's his word, not mine. But, but the first side of the comma, it says free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. Yes, yes, yes. Is Twitter the digital town square where matters vital to the future of humanity are debated? I don't know. If I were trying to buy Twitter, I would argue that it is because it enhances my um, uh, um, noteworthiness or notoriety in that part of it. Um, but, but he says he wants to make Twitter better than ever by enhancing the product with new features, making the algorithms open source to increase trust, defeating the spam bots or spam bots, and authenticating all humans. Twitter has tremendous potential. I look forward to working with the company and the community of users to unlock it. It's a financial um, deal, no doubt about it. Uh, $46.5 billion, $21 billion of his own money, uh, $25.5 billion, uh, Morgan Stanley, Barclays, and Bank of America. Uh, J.P. Morgan and Bar- uh, Goldman. Can't have a big deal like this happen without J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs having a share of it. So they're on the other side, on the Twitter side. But I think Breeze is making the empirical point. And it is, you know, whether whether I believe, and I'm speculating, completely and totally speculative, but I don't believe that Elon Musk did this solely in the name of free speech. Breeze's point is what I've argued really and truly since I've been on the air, and the one thing we have been fairly loyal to, and that is I don't get to determine what misinformation is. I mean, that's not my responsibility. I'm I'm not entitled to tell you what is misinformation or what is not. Um, Hunter Biden's laptop, Twitter decided that was misinformation. Now we know it was not. Has Twitter issued an apology? To anybody saying, hey, for you out there who believed in the validity of the story of Hunter Biden and his laptop and some of the Chinese and, and Ukrainian business arrangements, uh, no, that, 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 was, that was content moderators, censors, basically saying, we're not going to have that conversation. And that's a lack of intellectual diversity. And by the way, uh, a decision that could have actually affected the outcome of a presidential election. It did affect the outcome. We don't know that it changed the outcome. But, but we know it affected the outcome of the election. So, so when I say to me this is a much bigger, uh, I, I don't think Musk bought the business simply because he's a free speech absolutist. But being a free speech absolutist and being sincere about that motivation, yeah. I mean, Breeze is exactly right. We've got to get to a place. And I think the, 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 the outcry, the uproar on Twitter yesterday was people who like to be, you know, they like to have the other side censored. 
And to me, the, the, the notion of wanting the other side censored demonstrates a, uh, an insecurity you have about being able to advocate or argue or articulate your point of view in a forceful and accurate fashion. I mean, if I tell you the Gamecocks are the best thing since sliced bread and nobody's allowed to contradict that, nobody's allowed to insinuate anything other than that, it becomes kind of sort of accepted. And we can't have that. We've got to have intellectual diversity. We, we, we can't have um, a, a, a content moderator deciding on his own volition what is misinformation or what is not. Because once again, um, I, I went back and looked last night. Twitter, Apple, Google, Facebook. You know what they have in common? 95% of the contributions made in the 2022 midterm. I didn't say the 16 presidential. I didn't say the 2020. I'm not looking back. 96% on average of all the contributions given by people who work at uh, Twitter, excuse me, Netflix, Twitter, Apple, Google, Facebook, are given to Democrat candidates. eBay, PayPal, Microsoft, Amazon are north of 90%. So you've got Netflix, Twitter, Apple, Google, Facebook, eBay, PayPal, Microsoft, Amazon, of the contributions made by people who are employed with those companies, technological technology companies, over 90% have been given to the Democrats. That's unhealthy. That's dangerous. That's a threat to democracy. It sincerely is. So Musk is exactly right when he says free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and content moderators don't deserve the authority to say what is misinformation or what is not. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hi, Larry. Hey, good morning. So two quick points. One, I think that what Elon Musk might be banking on is that the Republicans are going to take back over the legislative body in 2022, and they're going to start busting up these big companies that aren't being fair. And so I think what he figures is if he can get in there now, and start dismantling the unfairness of Twitter, that that's going to be the last man standing as a singular company when it's all said and done, and he's going to become the next whatever, Amazon, whatever. He'll be as big as Facebook because they're going to they're going to break those other ones up. But here's the main reason I called. The thing that I, I, I guess I don't like, if, if I went to the doctor and the doctor said, look, you've got cancer, I'd say, all right, what are we going to do? We're going to give you more cancer. The problem that we've got right now in this country are tech billionaires. But we think that a tech billionaire is going to somehow save us. And I'm, I'm really getting sick and tired of people looking for some man on a white horse savior figure to solve a problem that we can solve. We don't need a tech billionaire. We don't need a savior. We just need to get politically active and do the things that, that we know work. We need to be running for school board. We need to be running for state house. We need to be running for governor. We need to be voting out lots of Republicans and, and, of course, not voting for Democrats. We can make the change. The game that they play is on our back. If we would just stand up, they wouldn't have a board to play on. But we stay there bent over for them, and they play their game with us. If we don't, I mean, I appreciate what he's doing, and I think it's a good gesture, and if it kind of inspires people who love free speech to, to maybe be a little more bold in their in their in their in their patterns of life, then that's good. But if we're gonna say, oh well, okay, here he is, come save us, he's not coming he's not doing this for you and me. 
He's not doing this because he loves you and me. I promise you, it may be a side effect that it's good for you and me, but I just don't want us putting all our stock in another billionaire because, you know, the, the, a lot of people thought Bill Gates was going to save the country of India, and, and he didn't. You know, a lot of people thought that, you know, this billionaire and that billionaire were going to change things, and they didn't. So I don't want us putting all our eggs in the Elon basket. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. Well said. The most effective political blunt instrument in this world is the will of its people. I mean, I'll repeat that. The most effective political blunt instrument in this world that will affect more change and, and has directed more change across this globe. It's not a, it's not an oligarch. It's not. I mean, we do have tech billionaires who are out of control. I mean, I, I'll buy that. I mean, I'm, I'm with Larry there. there. There's no question that, that another tech oligarch, another billionaire is not going to solve the problems of the world. And we're along for the ride on this. I mean, I began the show this morning for you who believe that Elon Musk is a conservative warrior, you will be sadly mistaken at some point in time. You will be let down by some of his other alternative views in transhumanism or atheism. Or uh, he's, a, he's a unique dude, man, that there's no doubt it, that, that he is our, uh, we celebrate and revere him today because he has been able to accomplish things or some one thing that none of us can fathom. And that is to to basically break some of the stranglehold that the tech companies had on monopolizing conversation uh, by by having content moderators that deem something misinformation or something not. So so no question about it. Today we should be loud and proud, Elon Musk cheerleaders. But that's today. That doesn't sustain change. I believe that Musk is motivated by something other than free speech. I'm not saying that that he's not sincere in his advocacy for free speech. I believe with all of my heart that that he's one of these libertarians um, who believe that, you know, um, you should almost be allowed to yell fire at a crowd at theater. I think he may stop short of that, but he would probably go further down that road than most of us are comfortable with. I think that's in his DNA. I think that's who he is. But I think the reason he's buying Twitter is much more complicated and complex. And I tried to explain this morning about some of the businesses he has. He spends no money marketing Tesla. His competitors spend two grand per vehicle. All of a sudden, he's got a, uh, uh, no pun intended here, a vehicle of which to market. So, so is that some of his strategy? I just don't buy for a second that the guy spends one of every $4 he has to his name to help unleash conservative America from the bondage of censorship. Today, we should celebrate. Today, the stars align. Today, he's our guy. But, but, but Larry's right. I mean, if, we're, if we believe that Elon Musk is going to lead us to the promised land and he's going to be a redeemer and a salvation uh, for, for, for what we hope and aspire to be moving forward, we'll get exactly what we deserve. We'll get let down. He will do something sooner than later that, that all of us say, that's the same guy that bought Twitter and, and stopped the censorship and exposed the algorithms. That's who he is. He's not an ideologue. He, he's, a, he's an innovative entrepreneur that is unbelievably visionary, probably as visionary as anybody in my lifetime. Today, he's our guy. But to Larry's point, he may not be tomorrow or the next day or the day after that and we've got to accept that complication. We've got to accept that some of this is our responsibility. And for the life of me, I don't understand how we believe that we can sit back and allow, you know, a tech, what, what do we want? When, when Musk gets Twitter turned around, he goes on the defense against Facebook, 
because, you know, the, the, those conservative Americans are getting treated unfairly in the public square. I'll spend every dollar in my pocket to make sure conservative Americans are heard. No, that's, that's not who this guy is. Please trust me when I tell you his objectives are not to unleash conservative America. His objectives are and have always been visionary. And, and I think part of this is, um, I mean, it incorporates, now he has a public square to advocate for, I mean, let's think of this, colonizing Mars. Um, so some of the other disruptive businesses he's involved in. Um, he's a complex guy, and this is a complex issue. Today, we align. Uh, to tomorrow, we may not. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. A couple of folks are on the phone. Let's go there. Rick in Sumter. Good morning, Rick. Hey, good morning. Hey, Rick. Uh, just wanted to play devil's advocate for a minute. Yes, sir. Um, who, who would be terribly unhappy about Elon Musk buying Twitter and freeing conservative voices? <sighs> a single individual? Or are you talking about liberal America? No, a group. A group. Liberal America? Yes. Um, okay, liberal America, but I'll give you one other group. Okay. The investors in Truth Social. Okay. Because Truth Social is now virtually worthless if, you know, Twitter retools and drops the censorship, right? Correct. So that might be another. Maybe Elon Musk has a bone to pick with some of those guys. Like Which Donald Trump. Trump. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if you saw this or not, Rick, but yesterday Trump said that he's not going back on Twitter He's going to remain supportive of, of True Social, and a lot of that he's got his own money tied up in there. I mean, that's kind of his brainchild. Exactly. Yeah. That would be sharp. You know, this freeing Twitter would pretty much defeat the purpose of Truth Social. Rick, do you agree or not with my argument that this is not about, I mean, this it's about free speech to some degree, but this is much deeper than that. This is much more complicated than that. The, the richest man in the world is not going to spend one of every $4 he has just to make sure Americans are allowed to have a fair and free debate. I think this has a lot to do with um, the potential he sees in Twitter as a an advocacy fee arm, advocacy arm for some of the businesses he's involved in. You say I what agree. to that? I agree with you 100%. I just think I would stop. I wouldn't pop the champagne corks yet because this guy is a lot deeper than just, hey, they're – silencing some people the heck with that i'm going to free it no yeah. there's there's a lot more to it than that but i just thought about the truth social i looked it up there's billions of dollars invested in launching that platform which is now pretty much negated i'll agree with that because it was to run counter to twitter as long as twitter was a place where people believe their opinions were censored yes sir I interesting thank you rick appreciate that man we got good callers i mean we have one after the other after the other, and I want to delve back into this real quick. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. The point I made much earlier this morning, and Rev, kind of like, well, where are you going with this, man? Um, I went last night and and looked at some of the um some of the I don't know the 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 auto industry and how it spends its money because I just kind of had this this thought this premonition. Um, because I got caught up in that for a second. There was a week or so that I said, Elon Musk is a free speech crusader, and he's going to do whatever it takes to make sure he liberates, you know, folks like me and the shadow banning and the, you know, the censorship of the content moderating. Uh, and then I said, you can't be that stupid. 
You can't believe that one of the most sophisticated entrepreneurs of our time is simply going to spend one of every $4 to his name or that he's ever made in his life in the name of liberating conservative Americans. I just don't buy that. I think that this is kind of a twofold mission. I think Elon Musk, as he said, believes that free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. But, but then I started saying, okay, um, how do you follow the money here? And, and I started thinking about it because Google, Facebook, and Twitter are perceived as having enormous influence over um, what we see, what we hear, what we're allowed to see, what we're allowed to hear in the digital world. I mean, in the digital world, and you almost look at Google, Facebook, and Twitter as the, uh, I don't know, these constant forces that dominate, you know, what you're allowed to read and what you're allowed to see. But, but it's really not the case. What, when you look at um, Google, $257 billion in revenue, a market cap of $1.7 trillion. When you look at Facebook, $119 billion in annual revenue, a market cap of $583 billion, which is a little, you know, a half trillion dollars, a little better than half a trillion. And then you've got Twitter with $5 billion in annual revenue, a market cap of $36 billion. And once again, Elon paid too much at $44 billion. But did that surprise you, Reb? That Twitter was that much smaller in scale than Google Man, or, or Facebook. So, so then I said, okay, he sees untapped potential. I mean, he sees a way to grow this business model, um, but how does he monetize? And then I began to think about Tesla because I read somewhere, uh, I don't know, a year or so ago, that some of, the, um, some of the advisors to Tesla were trying to convince Musk that you need to advertise. I mean, marketing is an important ingredient to uh, the Tesla model and that the organic nature of which you're trying to go to the business is not going to allow you to, uh, I don't know, Rev, create um, your share of the marketplace without going head to head with, in other words, um, run an ad saying GM does this, Ford does this, and Tesla does that. Um, Tesla spends about $3,000 per vehicle on research and development. That's encouraging. Uh, the legacy manufacturers spend about $1,000 per vehicle on research and development. Uh, but the legacy builders spend about two grand per vehicle on marketing. Tesla spends zero on marketing. So the guy that owns Tesla and spends zero in marketing all of a sudden has a, a media forum that he refers to as the kind of de facto town square or de facto digital town square. And I just got to believe that there's some synergies there that, that he will take advantage of. Um, Tesla could become the marketing arm, not, not exclusively, but it could become the marketing arm uh, for Tesla. Uh, Twitter could, could all of a sudden have, you know, Tesla ad after Tesla ad or, or positive news story after positive news story of Tesla or Boring or SpaceX or uh, some of these other, Starlink or some of these other um, disruptive companies that Musk is um, so associated and and really immersed in. I mean, th th this is very passionate about his business life. So um, that's my opinion. Now, now, once again, there will be conservative host after conservative host after conservative host today tell you that this is all about free speech. Elon Musk is a free speech warrior, and he was willing to go to the mat defending your right uh, to say what it is you choose to say and it be heard. I think that's true. I believe that. I think he is a free speech warrior, and I think he finds it deeply offensive that you're not allowed to share your opinion on equal scale to liberal America. But, but I think there's much more to this.
I just think where, where you and I stop thinking is kind of sort of where he starts. I wonder how much of it is the actual untapped potential. He has ideas, and he mentions it in his statement of things that he can do to actually improve the platform. And I wonder if, if that's the visionary part of him as well. It's like, you know, he's on the first floor, but this thing has a long way to go. But I think he believes giving everybody a fair shake is intriguing. I mean, that's enticing. Um, I think Twitter's problem, the reason they're, 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 uh, their membership or their uh, – that's not subscribers. What do you – users. Users. That's the best word. Their, their users have flatlined is people like me throw our hands up and say, man, I'm not fighting that. I mean, I'm not going to go on Twitter because they'll they'll censor me. I'll try to post something. It'll have some of these catch words or code words and content moderators. You know, they, they'll they'll squelch. They'll, they'll shadow ban. They'll do whatever it is to not allow me to be as forceful as I could be. I mean, there's humpteen millions. I heard Dave Portnoy um, last night on Tucker's show talk about the, uh, you know, he was really excited about Twitter because it allowed him to engage in real time and, and, and have these uh, vigorous debates one with another. Next thing you know, um, he's not being followed by anywhere near as many people as he thought. He's not getting the response that he thought. And, he, I mean, he knows what happened. I mean, he's kind of a, a loud and proud voice for not conservative America, but free speech. And, 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 you know, it's not your right to tell me what misinformation is. And Portnoy, I mean, he was one of the ones yesterday. I, I don't know Elon. That's what he said. I don't know Elon. Never met him. Um, but, but today he's kind of one of my heroes because <laughs> he's allowed us to believe that there's going to be a more fair treatment of conservative and right-leaning opinion in a place where we know that's not been the case. I mean, how many people are disgusted because it's very public when they take Donald Trump off the platform? Well, I mean, why would you go on a site where you know you're going to be unfairly treated? I mean, why, why would you do that? Right. I mean, there's a, I don't know, Rev, there's, there's a human compulse that all of, we want to be treated fairly. I mean, we, we want to be um, dealt with fairly. And I think when you are a right-leaning American, somebody on the conservative side of the political debate, and you go on Twitter, you go with the expectation that you're not going to be treated fairly. And that gets a bit discouraging. And a lot of people say, man, screw that. I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll write a blog or I'll, you know, I'll argue with my friends at the bar tailgating. I'm not messing around with that because I'm not being treated fairly. So I think, Musk, the growth model will consist of convincing people no matter what you feel no matter what you believe you're going to be treated fairly here and and who are we to suggest that we understand clearly and without question what misinformation really and truly is let's go to the phone joe in hartsville good morning joe yeah good morning guys <clears throat> you know, I, I can't believe the left is treating an african-american the way they are with elon musk he is the original African-American. He actually lived in Africa and now has become an American. So you can take that for what it's worth. I'm kind of in the same camp with your previous caller. I've, I've thought about this whenever he started doing this, when Trump's true social started taking off. I mean, it's getting ready to go. Because I get emails every day. Are you going to join? What's your union? I wasn't a member of Facebook. I'm not a member of Twitter. And I'm not going to be a member of True Social. But because Trump has ramped this thing up and got all this money in it, now all of a sudden Twitter's got to be made free. You can speak your mind. These people use the Constitution to destroy the Constitution every day. You know, the founders said our 
formal government is only successful for a moral and educated people. And we're going down a road to where those are becoming very scarce very quick. So y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. I just don't see for the for the life of me um, where the place is for true social. If Musk, I mean, if this deal closes, and for all practical purposes, it's done. Um, but I mean, there, there's some legalities, I would imagine. I mean, the money has to wire and transfer, and the, the shareholders have to be paid and made whole. Um, they'll get 50, what, $54 and uh, 40 cents a share. Is that the number, Rev? Uh, 54.20 uh, per share. So they'll be, um, they'll be paid in cash. It will become a private company on completion of the deal. I don't know where Truth Social goes here. I mean, I understand the Trump affiliation, the Trump association, and I understand the legion of supporters that President Trump has. But if a free speech absolutist buys Twitter, and his, his intent is very clear. We're going to not um, censor. We're going to not label misinformation um, or not. You know, I asked Rev during the break, what is, what is off limits? I mean, if you're a free speech absolutist, what is off limits? Are you allowed to spread rumors? In other words, is Dave Baker allowed to tweet that I'm having an affair with, with a lady that works at the radio station? I mean, none of that is true, but, but is Dave Baker allowed is there consequence to that? Uh, or are there going to be some limits to that? Um, we'd like to believe that people have enough personal dignity not to do those sorts of things, but we know they don't. I mean, <laughs> you know they don't. Sure, they don't. I mean, people, you know, it's easy to be. I've always said that um, anonymous makes um, cowards brave. You know, the ability to be anonymous and sit behind a keyboard. I mean, I've always. Uh, I've, I've never been bothered by people who are willing to say what it is they're willing to say as long as they own it. I mean, if you're going to stand in front of me and say these things and you might get punched in the mouth or you might not, but, but to sit in your basement with your pajamas on, you know, and a keyboard in front of you, um, insinuating certain things or spreading rumors. I mean, I, I, I do think there's a place for um, that to be dealt with. I don't know how to deal with it because once again, um, you don't have a right to not have your feelings hurt, but do I have a right to not be lied about? Right, yeah, uh, slander. Sure, sure. I mean, in defamation and slander, and um, I mean, you know, we say a lot of negative things about Joe Biden here. We say a lot of negative things about Barack Obama here. We say a lot of positive things about Donald Trump here. Um, and this is the public square and their public uh, personalities, but but you know that there has to be some. Um, well, let me ask you this: in the new version or variety of Twitter under the control of Elon Musk, do we need content moderators? I mean, if we've got, let's say, let's say Facebook has 15,000, let's use kind of a scaled theory. And then, you know, Twitter has 3000. Um, do we need the 3000 content moderators? If you're a free speech absolutist, uh, do you trust the people to do the right thing? Some will do the right thing. We know that some won't. What do we do with those who won't do uh, the right thing. Does Dave Baker have a right to go on a uh, on his Twitter account and say things that are just absolutely untrue about somebody else? Does a content moderator need to step in, uh, or, or do, you know, how do you settle that dispute? If I'm um, if you say yes and I say no, and we have a a, a genuine heated disagreement, uh, you know, I'm talking about politics. I'm not talking about should the tax rate be 38 percent or 34 percent. You know, should we have um should, should the mattresses have this sort of authority or should they not? 
talking about local crime. I mean, you know, those are going to be the worthy debates. That's where Twitter can really make democracy more effective and become a functioning bedrock of democracy when we're arguing some of these very worthwhile, but what we start getting personal and spreading rumors and, and slandering people. I mean, is there a place for content moderation in that regard? Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Carol in Marion. Hi, Carol. Hi. Um, so I think that True Social still has a place because people are still going to be wary of Twitter, regardless of who owns it, unless Elon Musk fires everybody and rehires, um, or not rehires, restaffs with different people. Because he's just one man. He can't make sure that every single one of those, um, what, what did you call them? The, uh, the content moderators. moderators? Content moderators, yes, thank you. Um, not, he can't monitor every single one of them um, and make sure that they're not censoring people themselves. Thank you, Carol. That's, that's, that's a fair criticism. Or not a fair criticism, a fair comparison, I guess. Um, Musk has a... Uh, a pretty good track record of not allowing those that he had a problem with to hang around. I mean, if you go back and look at his business, uh, once he has a problem with someone or doesn't believe that someone is carrying out the ultimate mission, he's never been uh, bashful about, you know, changing the guard. So I would imagine, how many employees does Twitter have? 7,500, somewhere thereabout. I would imagine the overwhelming majority, uh, there's more than that. How many... uh, and is it 5,000 or 10? It's somewhere between five and 10,000. See if you can Google that real quick, Reb. Okay. Um, because, you know, he's, he's just never been. 7,000. Okay, 7,000. I thought it was 7,500. He's never been the kind of guy um, shy about um, you pledging allegiance or loyalty to him being the guy in charge. And if you can't, um, he'll show you the door. Yeah. I mean, he's got a pretty good track record of. Um, excusing those who don't seem to be on board uh, with where the business wants to go. I'd like him to clean house. Yeah, well, I think he will. I mean, I don't think there's any question about it. He'll clean house. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Jack Dorsey, Dorsey was kind of forced out of Twitter, and um, and Dorsey says that Elon was the only chance that Twitter had to survive, that it was going to die under its current construct of censorship and, uh, and left-leaning biases. Um this is kind of interesting to me, and I couldn't begin to understand. Maybe a listener out there knows far more about this than I do, but there's a there's a mindset in finance that this deal could change um, crypto and the stock market. By that, I mean some of the establishment forces that have marginalized crypto in preference to the traditional investment model and um, the sanctity of the dollar are now going to be um, having to compete on a uh, level playing field. In other words, stories about crypto and um, and their you know hedge against the dollar could become um, far more mainstream than before because there are a lot of people in uh, the world of which I circulate. I don't run with these people, so to speak, but I read a lot about what they have to say, and they believe that Twitter's been in the tank for the Fed, you know, the government, uh, the the sanctity of the dollar and anything about crypto as a competitive or competing force has been marginalized. And, and you know, some of the articles that talk about Dogecoin or Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, we'll see how that, we'll see if this deal has any sort of implications 
uh, on the stock market and crypto in terms of um, a price appreciation. We did see crypto had a big day yesterday, Dogecoin in particular. So, um, yeah, that's kind of another nuanced uh, part of this. And look, there are a lot of things about this I know. There are a lot of things about this that I absolutely don't know. It will be very interesting uh, to watch it play itself out over the next, what, Rev, year? Somewhere there about. I think he takes over later this year. It'll be very entertaining. To and say um, the least. yeah, I mean, some of some of the legalese, so some of the legal language will be settled upon. But um, I mean, the, the the deal's not done until when? Until the money transfers. Once the wire is made, that consummates uh, him purchasing Twitter. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I want to go back over these numbers real quick, and then we'll join our professors, Dr. Will Bolt, Dr. Scott Kaufman, or here from Francis Marion. They're on loan from Francis Marion University. Um, they, they they tarnish their academic images when they join the fray <laughs> of conservative talk radio, and they keep coming back. For but more. it shows you how um, riveting what we do here is today. They can't help themselves. They know. They tarnish their image, but they keep coming back time after time after time. So here are some of the numbers that we talked about this morning, and then we'll get into the, uh, I want to get the professor's opinions on this. Um, as a business deal, it is $46.5 billion, um, $25.5 billion in debt financing, the majority of which is um, Morgan Stanley, Barclays, and Bank of America. Um, somebody asked me, so Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan aren't in on this? And I think I said last week, they're probably on the Twitter side. Well, we found out they're on the Twitter side. Um, Musk put up $21 billion of his own money. Um, he liquidated some Tesla stock. So yesterday, Tesla has not such a good day on the uh, on the market, and Twitter had a good day. Um, $54.20 per share is what the shareholders will receive um, they'll get cash. I mean, they'll, they'll get a check. Whatever shares you owe, own, uh, multiplied by $54.20. Um, and then Twitter becomes a private company at that time. And uh, there will be conservative radio show host after conservative radio host shows, uh, show host after conservative radio show host, um, in fear to this one that say he did it because of free speech. He did it because he believes that free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy and Twitter is a de facto digital town square, town hall. Um, I don't buy that. I mean, I just simply do not. I think there are a lot of other motivations uh, that led Elon Musk to make this deal. Do I believe that Twitter censors? Yeah. Do I believe that Twitter has content moderators that unfairly censor or temper the opinions of people on the political right? Yeah. Do I think Elon Musk is a free speech absolutist? Yes. But, but Musk is a business guy. And it's not sometimes about the money. It's always about the money. And I've landed, and I'm speculating, nothing but speculating here. I believe that he sees this as an opportunity to market um, some of the businesses that he owns. And I'm talking about Tesla in, in particular. Uh, we said it earlier. I'll say it again for those just joining us. Um, Tesla spends $3,000 per vehicle on R&D. The legacy manufacturers only spend about $1,000 on R&D, Tesla spends basically nothing on marketing. Uh, the legacy manufacturers spend two grand on marketing. Uh, the industry spent about 15 to $20 billion last year in marketing dollars. That's good for radio. We get a share of that. 
Um, GM spent about three billion. So when you look at uh, kind of kind of an economic scaling, it is a pretty good investment. I mean, even if you paid forty four billion dollars or forty five billion dollars, and you get um, access to millions and millions and millions of potential consumers, um, I think there's a play there. I think there's a financial play that that Musk can justify with whomever he trusts. I mean, all rich guys have a team of accountants and advisors, and you know these people. Uh, some are yes men, some are not. I mean, I would imagine somebody on bus team says, Elon, you can't do this. You can't spend one of every $4 you have to your name just to liberate conservative America. You're not even conservative. Uh, the second they find out you're a transhumanist <laughs> and you're into eugenics, they're going to kick you to the curb anyway. Um, so this is not conservative America. This is a, um, a moment in time where a, one of the most visionary entrepreneurs of our time kind of aligned with, uh, with conservative America in a belief that Twitter has um, censored. But I think it's much deeper than that. I think there are financial components to this that we don't uh, understand. There's a reason that he's ambitious of colonizing Mars and disrupting the auto industry, and we aren't. Um, you know, he's one of the rare birds. I mean, he just is. Some people are, are special. And I think he is a special, special human being that believes disruption is the best way to improve the, the the plot of humanity. Dr. Kaufman, I mean, that's kind of a commentary. You say what to that? I mean, you probably agree and disagree with some well, of what I said. I mean, I don't see this as strictly altruistic. Okay, um, no, nor do I. And, and I mean, I was thinking about some of the things you talked about. Uh, Twitter has about 200 million users. Facebook has 2.9 billion active users. So if this is indeed in part an effort to market Tesla's products, then certainly uh, he has done some number crunching and said, if I can make Twitter into what Facebook is for really nothing, I can start marketing my products and not just Tesla, SpaceX, whatever else I want to do, get that out there for very little on the dollar. And and to that point, Dr. Bolt, uh, we look at three companies as ah, controlling the digital public square, Google, Facebook, Twitter, but to Dr. Koppen's point, Google had annual revenues of $257 billion, the market cap of the market valuation $1.7 trillion, Facebook $117 billion in revenues, their market cap is $583 billion, Twitter only had $5 billion in revenue, uh, it's a market cap of $36 billion, he paid $44 billion because he paid a premium in, in the buyout, but, but Twitter is nowhere near on the scale of Facebook or Google when it comes to uh, influencing right. the, the, the digital media. No, oh, absolutely. But if you say anybody who is thinking the sky is the limit, it's certainly this Elon Musk seems to have the uh, the Midas touch, if you will. And you look maybe like a historical example. Uh, J.P. Morgan, guy just a world-class renowned banker, has no knowledge of the steel industry, buys Carnegie Steel from Andrew Carnegie. The two guys get together and he says, all right, well, what's, your, what's your offer? A billion dollars? And J.P. Morgan says, sold. You know, two guys work out a huge deal. He then takes it, makes it U.S. Steel. It makes it into a, a financial behemoth, you know, one of the w- biggest seal producers in the world. And I'm sure that's what Elon Musk is probably thinking along those lines. We're number three right now. But again, give me my ideas, my individuals, some of these changes I'm going to make around the edges. Uh, check us, check back in a few years and see where we are then. Dr. Kaufman, do you agree that free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy? I think free speech is vital, yes. What sort of, what sort of content moderation is required?
when it comes to free speech. Well, you can't yell, as you talked about, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You can't go out there and encourage the use of violence. Um, but as long as you're not breaking the laws, I, I think that we have to have free speech. And there are going to be views out there that are that people are going to find reprehensible. I mean, there are views out there that I look and I go, my God, that's terrible. That's absolutely reprehensible. Um, and But you have a right then to criticize those views, to condemn those views. Is democracy better when people are allowed to express themselves however reckless they choose to? I, we have to be careful. When you say however reckless, again, if you're going to start going out there and promoting violence, if you're going to go out there um, and, and encourage people to, I don't know, kill other individuals. No, I mean, we, we, we've got to be careful how, how far we allow that to go. I mean, there's no right as absolute. Okay, what about the suppressing of information? I want to get out of bolt here in a second. Uh, we agree that, that you can't incite violence. You can't ask someone to perpetrate violence against another human being. And I don't think you should be allowed to just make up and fabricate mm-hmm. things about your fellow man. There should be, we got slander laws and defamation of character laws. Public, in the public domain, it gets real squishy, yes. the, the, um, the enforcement of those. But, but when it comes to censorship, um, should questionable opinions and political rumors, uh, and I'm talking about Hunter Biden in particular. I, mean, I think the Hunter Biden story is the most classic example of Twitter. Twitter disallowed anybody to tweet that story from the New York Post because they said it uh, appeared to be Russia propaganda. We know now that's not uh, the case. Are we better off with Elon Musk owning Twitter and that story being allowed uh, to, to exist in the mainstream? I don't know if it was Pew Research or New York University that found that those those posts, whether they be on Facebook or Twitter, that promoted misinformation were six times more likely to to get clicked on, to get followed than those that were not. That is very disconcerting. Um, but at what point I mean, there we have seen instances where there are things that were seen as misinformation or disinformation that turned to be true. Jose Canseco talking about steroids in baseball. So I can understand the serious concerns about that. But again, I sit here and I, I say to myself, if you're not promoting violence, if you're not breaking the law, then should that speech not be allowed? I, I, again, I, I, have, I, could, I know the qualms that are out there because it can lead us down dangerous roads. But... I think if we if we allow ourselves to start censoring things because we believe it to be misinformation when it could in fact be true, then that too leads us down dangerous roads. So who gets to decide, Doctor <laughs> Bolt, what misinformation is and what isn't? <laughs> thanks, thanks for the softball question right there. I mean, just, no, and again, as my esteemed colleague said, it's a, it's a very very slippery slope. And again, most of us would consider ourselves to be civil libertarians. Uh, and believe really that there should be very very few limits. But again, who's gonna who gets to make that that final call, and who's gonna monitor the people who are doing the monitoring? It's just where where does all of it all of it end? There has to be some type of restrictions. But again, if we went around the room here and and asked the poll the listeners, everybody's probably gonna have a a different level where you would say no, no, this is where it has to be censored. And so yeah, who who exactly knows what the right answer is? And so. Yes, I'm punting on your question. Well, let me, let me okay, I want to follow up with this. Uh, we're famous here for talking about Russian oligarchs uh-huh. and, and Saudi princes and the royal family and the enormous wealth they have. Um, I'll give you four names. You ready? Sure. Um, Jeff Bezos, uh-huh. Elon Musk, 
Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates? Are they American oligarchs? Are they allowed to participate in a way that shapes the national narrative in in ways that are not yeah. in democracy's best interest? Well, they uh, they have a lot more freedom of speech probably than you and I do. And you you have a very big microphone. Uh, theirs is a lot bigger for sure. They can reach a million the times, a trillion lot. times bigger. Yeah. Yes. So no, you know it's you know my money money talks. You know what uh, you know what walks. I won't say it on the air. So no, if if you're a wealthy individual like those, if you want to call them oligarchs, and in many ways they fit they fit the definition of it. Yes, they have an unlimited freedom of press. They have the resources to do whatever they want. You and I, the sort of the, the little guys, the peasants. Don't have that, unfortunately. Or they oligarchs, Dr. Coppin. They have enormous, potentially enormous power. Um, one of the one of the concerns I have, and I think it's what you're getting at, is that these individuals, and we can throw others in there as well, Rupert Murdoch, um, because they He's also— He's one of the good ones, but continue. <laughs> I noticed that you didn't ever name him, though. <laughs> of course I did. Um, <laughs> but I didn't that, name George Soros but, but, either. But the, <laughs> but the impression is that because they own outlets— to uh, information outlets that they then have control over what those outlets say, what they do. Um, and that is one area where I do have serious concern because even if Jeff, Jeff Bezos says, look, Washington Post can do whatever they want, even if Rupert Murdoch says, look, I'm not touching Fox News, they can do whatever they want. The fact that they own these companies um, does lead people down the road to believe, well, you know what, they must have some kind of impact on what those those outlets are saying what they're doing. Okay, uh, what sort of responsibility do we bear? I mean, if we're that easily hoodwinked, if the latest, greatest American oligarch can come along and buy Twitter and convince us he's the greatest thing since sliced bread and Twitter's better than Facebook because Facebook does this. In other words, what, what responsibility do we have? I mean, we are a democracy. We're a representative republic. Um, we get to freely think about what we believe and what we don't believe and what we trust and what we don't trust. Um, at what point in time do we take ownership of, of whether we believe this or die or not? Well, one thing you have to do is become informed. Um, I mean, so much is so much of what we do is we, we want to be, you know, we, we want to go to those outlets that that preach what we believe. And we want so, affirmation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we don't we're not willing to look at the opposing point of view. I think we have to be willing to to do that. I mean, I've said to you on this show before, I'll watch CNN and then I'll put on Fox News because I want to see what Fox has to say. I think that's the, the kind of thing we have to do is to be a well-informed public. Because if you're not, then what happens is you're making decisions based on ignorance. But we're not a well-informed public. <laughs> I mean, we, we are a, I don't want to call us an ignorant public. I mean, the majority of us listening to this show have made a, a, a little more effort than, the, sure. than most. I mean, by not mm -hmm. listening to... You know, classic rock or country music. I'm nothing against classic rock, nothing against country music, but the majority of you listening right now have taken um, pr probably three or four or five steps forward that, that most Americans have not right. taken and being willing to at least participate yeah. in a debate. Well, a lot of Americans maybe will just tune into this stuff every four years or maybe every two years when it's getting close to an election time. And there's all the great listeners, right? They're certainly the, the news junkies, and we certainly appreciate it, but sadly, they're probably the the minority and for many americans ignorance is bliss and i am just i'm just going to go about my uh, average everyday life most of this stuff doesn't affect me what does it really matter if a guy who's got 40 is going to is going to spend 44 billion dollars i'm never even going to touch see that type I mean, 44 billion i mean how many nfl teams 
could he have bought? All of them. With that. I mean, exactly. I mean, the, the Buffalo Bills sold for $2 billion a couple of years ago. Even the Cowboys are worth like $7 billion. So, I mean, just an incredible, astronomical, mind-boggling deal. And it, we're all making the assumption that Elon Musk is really going to shake things up. He's this, whatever his motives are, he's a crusader for free speech. Well, there's that old saying that the, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And who knows if he might come in and say, well, we're just going to keep things the way they are. And then everybody's going to have egg on their face. He doesn't seem to be the kind of guy that keeps things you know, the way they are. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very disruptive um, sort of business guy. Let's take a break. I'm going to come back and these guys sure. will hang around one more. I'm going to kind of leave that in the rearview mirror and go to another issue that I think is very interesting. Um, we will meet next on the same day that the Senate race in Ohio is taking place. Um, kind of an interesting race that uh, Trump got involved in this week. Back in a minute. 843-661937, Dr. Scott Coppin, Dr. Will Boulder, both here, professors at Francis Marion University, Dr. Coppin, history chair at Francis Marion, Dr. Bolt, history professor at Francis Marion with a subspecialty in... The man, the myth, the legend, Andrew Jackson. Yeah, Elon Musk would have been a um, an Andrew <laughs> Jackson short of um, political <laughs> revolutionary uh, like to that. some degree. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, so... I want to I want to start with Dr. Coppin here and kind of get your take on um, I could care less who the leader of French is or France is, um, but there is a phenomenon that is happening not just in American politics but around the world, and I don't want to say far right. I'll say nationalist parties or nationalist movements, um, those that kind of um, ah find their foundations on sovereignty of nation and identity of nation. Um, I don't want to be in the European Union. I want to be French. I don't want to be a globalist. I want to be an American. Whether you like it or not, I think you would agree that there is a sentiment amongst voters all over the world that, that are more inclined to be in line with that sort of philosophy or belief. Uh, in 2002, um, the nationalist movement, what we'll call the, the far right, I think the traditional media calls it the far right movement in Europe, France in particular, got about 8% of the vote. In the most recent election, got about 41 or 2% of the vote. They lost overwhelmingly, but they went from 8% 20 years later to nearly 42%. What are we to make of that? Well, and it was 30, they, uh, Marine Le Pen got 33% of the last presidential election, gets 41% in this one. Um, the right lost, but it won as well. Um, is it the right, Scott? I mean, is it, is it the, I mean, how you and I have always identified as left and right. Is it the right? Certainly conservative, okay. so we'll call it conservative if you prefer to that. Um, it's a conservative movement. The interesting thing we have to keep in mind is Le Pen moved more to the center during this during this campaign, uh, became far became less nationalistic, um, and move again moved more to the center. Plus, Emmanuel Macron was not terribly popular in France, which hurt him. So those two things combined helped her do as well as she did. Uh, the the very fact now again she lost. But the fact that she still got 41% of the vote did point to the fact that her movement has legs. And so it is definitely something, it points to something that's going on in France. Now, we do have to keep in mind that in other areas, such as, I think it was in Slovenia, where they had recently had an election, uh, the person who was running there, who was considered the kind of the, the Trump candidate, lost big time. So it, it really is more country to country. But if we look at France, definitely this conservative movement has some legs. It's definitely doing much better than 
than previously. Dr. Bo, Brexit came, Trump wins, um, Le Pen lost overwhelmingly. I mean, 60-40 is a thrashing. Yeah. 58-42 is a thrashing, right, yeah. uh, except when you look 20 years ago when that number was 8%. Right. Um, you know, we call it far-right, conservative, national, whatever you want to call it. What's happening in the world today that, that, that so many people find that sort of candidate so intriguing? It's not, it's, it's not conservative values. It's, it's nationalism. And again, the United States of America and, and Donald Trump, we pop the cork. And everybody else is just kind of drinking from the, um, the champagne, the bottle that we, that we unleashed here in the United States. It's certainly it is, it is spread uh, to other parts of the globe. The sobering thing for me is, as an historian, is you had all these hyper-nationalist movements in the very, very early 1900s, and this is what led to the Guns of August and the start of World War I in 1914. Now, I'm not saying this is where we're going, but again, these intense nationalistic movements which brought lots of people together, and it's not just—you can have nationalism from the left. It's not just something that conservatives or people on the right have a monopoly on. It can bring the country together. It can bring everybody together. And then suddenly like, you're demonizing everybody else. And so, no, it, it, it's an intrigue. It's fascinating to kind of look at. And your point to the to France is, all right, they, they lost bad this year, but look at how far they've come. Four more years. I mean, Macron's a quintessential classic, slick, smarmy politician. He's probably even more vulnerable moving forward. So, yes, if you're in this nationalist camp in France, yeah, we lost. But, man, the sky's the limit. You know, like, give me, I got four more years to organize. I like my chances next time out. And in Ohio, I would argue, you want to shift gears and leave France, go to Ohio, um, which is quite the jump, um, <laughs> especially the Republican primary in Ohio. Um, Russ Belders, um, th- there is a nationalist element in that uh, race with J.D. Vance, mm-hmm. uh, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, um, kind of a celebrity politician, received the endorsement of Donald Trump. Um, he was at about 11 or 12%. It appeared that Blake Gibbons, would have been the heir apparent to that seat vacated by the retiring Rob Portman. But now you've got the club for growth who have traditionally been ah, the leading force in Republican endorsements, um, battling with Donald Trump and mm-hmm. J.D. Vance. Is this the first bellwether of how effective Trump endorsements will be throughout the 2022 midterms? I mean, it could be. There's some other places we're looking at as well. But this well. is the first one. I mean, this, this, one, this yeah. one will be a week from today, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. It, yes, and it... And it, it's very, it, it says a couple of things. Number one is, and this is not just true in, 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 in uh, Ohio, it's true in other races as well, that if you want to have a chance to win the Republican primary, you have to declare yourself supportive of Donald Trump, and you have to take a certain position regarding the 2020 election. That seems to be kind of a common theme. The question is going to, two questions that are going to appear. Number one, is that going to be enough to win the primary? In, in Ohio, it could be. But number two, is that going to be enough to win a general election? And that's where I think groups like the Club for Growth do have concerns is can you then appeal to a general electorate to win that the, the election should you win the primary? Can you be a 2022 midterm candidate, get Trump's support and endorsement and refuse to revisit and relegate the 2020 presidential election? Um, I mean, that seems to be a litmus you, test. It, it does. And I think that. You can, you can, if you win the election, you could probably move away from it. But as long as you are running for that seat, I think it's very hard for you to get away from that if you want to maintain Trump's endorsement. Dr. Bolt, same question to you. Yeah, may, maybe in the primary, but t- 10 years ago, you'd say, well, no, look at how far Ohio has moved to the right. I mean, it's, it's Democrats, the two years from now, aren't going to stand a chance 
to win that. Vance, whoever comes out of it gets, getting the Republican nomination, is probably going to have room to spare and can kind of move a little more to the right than traditionally we would have expected. And again, the, the Democrats, the, the message is just typical Ohio voters. A lot of the Rust Belt guys have come over, embraced the nationalist, the Trump movement. They've, they've lost the Democrats. In, in Ohio, it's a, a perfect bellwether. There are just so many things. You've got you know, big city machine in Cleveland, uh, heavy industry, of course, Youngstown, Appalachia in the southeast, and then more of a rural agricultural section uh, in the western part of the state. And certainly, you know, you've forgotten more about Ohio <laughs> than I'll ever know over there. So, I mean, yes, just to see how it all plays out in Ohio, I'm sure the pundits, the prognosticators are going to be crunching. I mean, Thigpen would just love uh, looking at the precinct level in Ohio after it all done. Dr. Coppin, if indeed Ohio and Florida have gone red, why? I mean, why is that the case? It looks to me like, I mean, this is the first time in 30 years that there are more registered Republicans in Florida. Dr. Bolt was talking about, you know, Ohio trending mm-hmm. more and more Republican. I mean, these have been traditionally um, monumental swing states of how you win a national election. It looks to me, I could be mistaken, but it looks to me there's no way a Democrat wins in Ohio. There's no way a Democrat wins statewide in Florida. Why is that the case? Well, again, and I, I would say the chances are, are pretty good that we're going to see Republicans win in both of those. Okay. Uh, and the Marco Rubio seat is leaning. There's a uh, Cook report has it leaning uh, Republican. Doesn't say it's solid Republican, but leaning Republican. So probably, it, and I, I guess in the hill that that seat will remain remain in Republican hands. Why it is, I think it varies from from state to state. I think you, there there are a variety of factors you can look at. Uh, the impact of globalization, for instance, especially in the Rust Belt, many individuals feel like that that has taken their jobs, threatened their 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 jobs there. Uh, you could look at the influence of the Cuban uh, of the Cuban American vote in places like Florida. Uh, concerns over immigration as well, which is resonating. Uh, you can throw in the fact that the culture wars are certainly having an impact. Uh, Republicans doing a, doing a very good job of using the culture wars in their favor. And last but not least, you have a Democratic Party that's having one heck of a time when it comes to messaging. It just seems to be lost. It seems to be re- reactive instead of proactive. And it, it just does not seem to be able to get its act together. So you put all these things together, and it, it's, a, it's a perfect situation for Republicans not only to win the House, but probably to, to win the Senate and, and, and get a pretty solid, not a huge majority, but a solid majority there. Dr. Bolt, to that point, the, the, the bill backed by um, the DeSantis administration, Disney takes exception with that. Um, I read some polling last week, toward the end of last week. Um, the, the public of, not the Republican primary voter, but the general public in Florida um, backed that bill by a 61 yeah. to 26 uh, percent. Um, Two weeks before the 1964 election, um, Walt Disney showed up to an LBJ event where LBJ gave Walt Disney the Medal of Freedom wearing a Barry Goldwater <laughs> sticker, you know, or, or, or button. So, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's been historically a fairly conservative yeah. company, family values and all these sorts of things. Are the Democrats giving in to some of the nonsense, and I will say nonsense, of of gender inequality right. and transgenderism. The people of Florida clearly believe that that uh, kindergartners, first graders, second graders, third graders should not be taught sexual right, orientation or gender identity. Yeah. What makes Disney believe this is smart on their behalf? Well, yeah, who who knows who's who's advising them? That's the big the big question. A bunch of guys out, liberal guys out in Hollywood, saying, "Hey, this is the way you got to do it." Now, again, maybe they think they're playing with with house money, think that the people are still going to come no matter what their political positions are. 
But certainly this is a testament to just the, the political strength of Ron DeSantis. I mean, this kind of like a like an FDR, just incredible political clout right now. And so certainly if Trump wants to step aside, I mean, DeSantis is a rock star right now. This guy just is is on a heck of a winning streak. He took on the big mouse. And again, the, the large majority of the people were behind him in this effort. And if he wants to go for it in 2024... If Trump steps aside, he's probably going to have an easy path. He can glide to the nomination. So what makes Disney believe this is a smart move on their behalf, Dr. Kaufman? Uh, it could be because they're looking at who, again, I'm just, I, mean, I, I can only take a guess. But I mean, is it, but, is it, is it, is it I mean, I, I'll, I'll be a bit insulting to, to the liberal. Is it the, the conviction of the woke left that, that believes, you know, that this is a hill worthy of dying on that, that kindergartners, first, second, and third graders um, need to be taught about sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, I mean, the people of Florida clearly say, uh, I disagree with Disney here. But but Disney had a lot to lose and lost. I mean, the, the, the Reedy Creek uh, Improvement District is now, you know, um, a thing of the past. Well, hold on a second. There's two things here. Number one is, I mean, Disney, I think, has been a company, at least certainly in recent years, that has, I think, has prided itself on being accepting of all people. Woke. Um, um, and so Woke. And, and you can use that if you want to use that term, that's fine. And okay. so and so by by supporting this law, they'd be going against that that idea. Uh, now, you mentioned Reedy Creek, what's going to happen there. This could actually end up coming back to bite Florida badly because um, there's one hundred and five million dollars that Disney paid for to cover for general services in Reedy Creek. That is not going to be covered by those counties. There's also as much as two billion dollars in bonds that those counties are going to have to deal with now. So what what's going to end up happening to Florida taxpayers as a result of all this? And don't forget, Disney is the largest employer in Florida. Uh, this could end up coming back to bite, um, bite Republicans in Florida. But right now, it's working in their favor. But to that point, I want, I want, and this is the last question I want to ask you. Why does Disney's leadership believe that this is worthy of a hill worth dying on and I'm talking about kindergartners and first and second, third graders being taught gender orientation or sexual orientation and gender identity. I get the, the open-mindedness. I understand um, the acceptance and diversity and a corporate America doesn't want to be it's exclusionary. They want to be embracing of people who see the world in very, there's value to that. There's merit to that. There's no question, but, but certainly there's got to be some uh, line of demarcation where we say that's just too much of what we believe in. Again, I can only guess, but one maybe what Disney is saying is, look, is there even a problem here? There are a lot of people on the left who say that what the right is doing is we're talking about a problem that doesn't even exist, uh, that this is part of the culture wars that we've seen in previous years. We talked about the 1980s, go back to the 50s and 60s, where people claim that there is a problem that's there that really wasn't a problem to begin with. I mean, how many people in the first or second grade are being taught about these kinds of issues? Uh, and so... What's happening would, here? Is, would, can I interrupt you? Yeah. Would you? You're a practical man. You're a smart man. Would, would you agree that we shouldn't teach kindergartners, first, second, third graders, sexual orientation and gender identity? I think that really should be up to the parents to do that. Um, but if the, the one one of the questions though becomes if a if a if a student comes to a teacher and has a question about that, what's the teacher supposed to do? Uh, is the teacher supposed to say talk to your parents, or is the teacher supposed to say, well, let me at least help you understand what the issue is. I mean, this is the one of the things that I think teachers have had to deal with throughout well, throughout history. But, but Dr. Bolt, to that point, it, it seems to me in some of the more liberal uh, school districts, there's yeah. been a, a concerted effort to disallow the parent 
right. from having some sort of parental involvement in understanding what the curriculum is and what the directives of the school district and school board are. All right, no, no, if you're talking about, you know, gender identity, you're, you're not talking about Andrew Jackson, right? But uh, no, for, for a lot of people would say this is the next step in the evolution of civil rights, you know, from African-American rights, women's rights, now to, to gender equality. And so this is why, for them, it's a fight worth having. It's a fight worth investing the political capital. And again, it's it's they think they think they have the moral high ground. And again, as you said, this is the hill that they're willing to die on for this issue. And so it's and it looks like the majority of the people right now aren't with them. Can they change the minds? Can they sway public opinion? Who knows? We'll we'll have to talk about that in a couple of years. Well, I can say this as a conservative Republican. I hope they continue to die on that hill because I I think it's a terrible, terrible political mistake, and I don't think it's in the country's best interest. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. We talked a little about the the Ohio Senate race with J.D. Vance kind of finding his stride at about the right time. I made a prediction. He found his stride or Trump helped him out? I mean, Trump helped him, obviously, but J.D.'s a quality candidate. I mean, we predicted that going in. That he would engage people, they would find him enlightening and refreshing. Um, it's in his DNA. I've often said that if anybody's going to fly the flag of America first, and I'm talking about you know the um, the plot of rural America, um, the the anti-globalist or what globalism has done uh, to the working class Americans, JD Vance would be that guy, uh, even more effective than DeSantis or Trump. Now, I'm not saying he's a he's a better politician. I'm not saying he's run for president against either Trump or DeSantis. They kind of created, we know Trump's got this global brand. DeSantis has a national brand. Um, J.D. Vance hadn't done that. But I still believe when it comes to America first, it's in his DNA more than it is anybody else's. His poll numbers really jumped, didn't they? They jumped a lot. And, you know, $13.5 million from Peter Thiel uh, doesn't hurt much. Uh, It's pretty interesting what you can do with money in politics. If you've got money in politics, your opponent can't define who you are because you're always defining yourself. You're a family man. You're a father. You grew up poor and went to Yale. If you don't have any money, it doesn't matter how good a candidate you are. You can't sit in enough coffee shops and talk on enough radio show interviews to explain to the public who you are and what you're about. What money allows you to do, and in J.D. Vance's case, $13.5 million of Peter Thiel's money, is tell your story. Um, obviously, uh, Gibbons is going to say J.D.'s a fraud. Look at all the nasty things he said about Trump. Um, he basically admits he said some nasty things about Trump, but he came around and he realized that some of the things Trump said, uh, however egregious they may have been, were necessary to get uh, the point across. Uh, but, but the J.D. Vance campaign, excuse me, the J.D. Vance race in Ohio is not as interesting to me as the Dr. Oz race is in Pennsylvania. You've got the closest thing to a Trump candidate in Dr. Oz. We have no idea what he knows about politics. We know that he's a celebrity. Uh, Trump has suggested that the reason uh, you should put your money on Dr. Oz is you figured out a way to stay on television for 18 years. And Robert Cahaley. Good ratings. Yeah, and Cahaley said, you know, that if he wins the primary, it's a slam dunk in the general because a lot of independent voters have seen him on TV and have kind of come to uh, grown to like him. And um, and find him a bit uh, intriguing or interesting, but in in the in the in the Pennsylvania race, you have a celebrity candidate in Dr. Oz, and then you've got David McCormick. And what is David McCormick? David McCormick worked for Bush. David McCormick's wife worked for Bush. David McCormick worked for Goldman Sachs. 
David McCormick's wife still works for Goldman Sachs. So when you look at the the two ends of the political spectrum in the Republican Party, you've got a celebrity in Dr. Oz who has no track record uh, worth considering on politics, but he's a celebrity, similar to Trump. And then you've got uh, an opponent, David McCormick, who is as entrenched in the establishment as anybody is. And that's why the, the Pennsylvania race, to me, is going to be so, so interesting. They're not fighting for the same universe of voters. They're not arguing. Blake Gibbons is basically saying, I'm more of an America firster than J.D. is. I know he grew up poor. I know he wrote Hillbilly Elegy. But what about all those things he said? In the Pennsylvania race, you got one guy saying, I'm a celebrity. And the other saying, I'm kind of an establishment Republican. What are the Pennsylvania primary voters going to decide? Interesting in Pennsylvania. Back in a moment. 843-661-0937. Elon Musk is one of 66, excuse me, one of 18 households. Check this out now. Stick with me for a second. Elon Musk makes up the 18 households in America, um, 0.00001% of Americans. That's kind of interesting. That that number, four zeros and a one, point four zeros and a one, um, make up 18 households who have an average net worth of $66 billion. So the richest 18 households in America average $66 billion in worth. They were one-tenth of 1% of America's wealth in 1990. Today, they're 1.2% of America's wealth. That doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a staggering increase from 0.1% to one2 two percent and once again point zero 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 one percent equals 18 households who have an average of 66 billion dollars here's the interesting part zuckerberg is one bezos is one musk is one what what do those three have in common they have a way to get their message out i mean they're involved in uh, the, the disseminating of information. They're, they're not in the railroad business. They're not in the car manufacturing. Uh, well, Musk is. Um, but you see where I'm headed. Right. I mean, Bezos owns the Washington Post. Zuckerberg owns Facebook. Now Musk owns Twitter. So we are um, being inundated with uh, with with messages and news or message and news from, um, from a very privileged and wealthy um, subset of Americans. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it is what it well, is. And it goes to prove that's kind of where the wealth is. The wealth that's been created in this this new technology. But but Musk didn't create the wealth in the new technology. Uh, Bezos did. With, well, Musk did with, with the new technology. You're right. Space exploration and, um, well, you know, start, electric vehicles. PayPal. But, but it, it's, interesting, it's interesting that every one of these people um, find it necessary to get their hands on some medium. Right some you know way of communicating uh to the masses uh i guess when you got so much money you just do what you want to do not only do i want to do what i want to do i want to try to tell you what to do as well <laughs> let's go to let's go to the phone here is tony in calhoun county listening to wtqs hello tony yeah good morning gentlemen hey tony um about yesterday's topic about electric vehicles do you know that we already have i mean because jeff called in and he said that something about until you have trucks and trains and dozers and whatnot running on DC motors. In that part, Jeff was technically inaccurate because 
for as long as I've been alive, or almost, well, 50 years anyway, um, all trains have been green. If you want to, you know, say that green means you're using a DC motor because mm -hmm. trains are kind of like a self-encapsulated, you know, national grid. They have uh, diesel fuel tanks, diesel engines, which drive a generator. That generator produces a voltage that, that charges batteries. It also is applied from the batteries to DC motors, which actually drive the train. Um, so all, all train locomotives run on DC motors. So they've been green for 50 years. Um, the U.S. has a power grid. The power is generated, is transmitted down lines. Um, it's transformed down to some usable voltage, which goes to a charging station. The charging station is capable of outputting a higher voltage and a higher current capacity to charge your, your, your Tesla vehicle faster. Um, so it charges the battery in your Tesla vehicle. Um, or you could have the home plug-in, which goes to an onboard or on-the-car charger, which you know, has a slightly less voltage and slightly less you know, charging capacity for amperage. So it takes longer to plug it in at home than it does plug it into a charging station. But in either case, inside the car is a battery. That battery goes to a DC motor. Um, that DC motor spins some kind of a transmission, which drives the tires, which makes your, tes your Tesla go down the road. Um, DC motors have a lot more torque than any diesel fuel, you know, natural gas, gasoline. I mean, the DC motor has just got torque. Um, I, I don't know what part, I, I could talk about any part of this or, or all of it. Um, so, so, so Tony, question. let me ask you a question. What would what could be the replacement for the diesel? I read a while back that for a a three thousand ton freight train to go five hundred miles, it takes about three thousand gallons of diesel fuel. So, how do right. how do we power trains without? I understand the electric motor. I understand the that I don't understand it. I, I, I I'm aware of it. I'm aware of the transference. You know what the diesel does to power the electric. Uh, batteries, but but how could we get to a place of not needing diesel engines on a train? Because once again, I read that 3,000 ton of train to go 500 miles takes about 3,000 gallons of diesel fuel. Well, there, there's going to be no, I mean, you couldn't get away from that. I mean, technically you could probably put some kind of uh, coils along the track, which induce voltage to the batteries, you know, to the batteries directly. So basically the, the voltage, you know, just like your motor, if you put a, uh, you induce a field into that, into the windings of the motor, that field, you know, that's transformed and becomes a different voltage somewhere else, like a transformer. But when someone so says could, a train you, you, doesn't run on diesel, they're not being honest. Well, well, to, to get a train or really anything off diesel, it, it, it's going to be problematic. Because even if you moved it, you know, even if you, you took a train locomotive and you put a DC motor on it, a battery, then some kind of an, a secondary field wires, which pick up the field from the track, somehow that power still got to get to the track. And that's going to come from nuclear or, or hydro or, you know what I mean? So you're just moving the problem from one place to another. But you're going to have to either onboard generate the power. Did you watch Back to the Future? I did. And they had the Mr. Fusion. Yeah, if, every Tesla, yeah. if every Tesla had a little Mr. Fusion, and so he generated his own little nuclear energy. Well, nuclear energy heats water. That water is converted to steam, which drives a turbine, 
which drives the generator, which charges the battery. So to, to be truly, you know, green or self-contained, that Tesla would have to have some, some way of burning fuel, whether it's nuclear or fossil fuel, to then drive the generator, which then charges the batteries, which then spins the motor. So you're just you're moving. It's an illusionary thing because you still got to generate that power to begin with. Sure, sure. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that. That's kind of getting in the weeds there a bit. Um, I've read a good bit about this, and here's the concern I have, and the concern a lot of the experts have is the um, the, the the system in place, the supply chain. Um, what happens to all the convenience stores? around America? What happens to all the uh, the oil companies? I understand Jeff's point yesterday. You know, the, the Exxon will reinvest their their resources in green energy. Uh, it, you know, I, I just don't buy that. I mean, I, I, for the, you know, I understand the thought, but it, it really goes back to, here's what, I think there's a fundamental difference in conservatives and liberals, and I think it's, it's genetic. I think it's just the way we're, we're wired. I think liberals take words on a sheet of paper, um, more, 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 I think conservatives tend to question words on a sheet of paper more than, than liberals do. You know, there's an article in the Atlantic magazine. The New York Times had a big expose. Um, 60 Minutes did a piece on. And I think the, the conservatives thought, okay, they did. But that's a lot of words on a, on a sheet of paper. And it's obvious somebody went to Davos and knows what they're, they're talking about. But, um, but what happens when you get hit in the mouth? I mean, as the great philosopher Mike Tyson said, somebody found this out too. What a plane <laughs> recently, recently proven. Yeah. Why do you pick a fight with Mike Tyson? I mean, seriously. He's dumb I mean, or drunk. Yeah, or... to get a, get a lawsuit. I mean, I see now where he's hired a lawyer and he's oh. going to sue uh, Tyson. But I mean, you know, you got to drink a lot to want to fight Mike Tyson, don't you? I mean, I've had periods in my life when I was not as coherent as I probably needed to be. I don't know that I've ever gotten there. I don't know if I've ever gotten inebriated to a point that I felt like, hey, that the guy, you know, the guy built like a bulldog with the tattoos on his face. He looks like the one I want to start a, a ruckus former with. heavyweight champion yeah, of the world. Yeah. Who is that, Mike Tyson? Oh, he's a has-been. Watch this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> How'd that work just, out? That's just dumb. I mean, that's just really, really, really um, stupid. Yeah, how did it work out? Uh, but, but no, I, you know, the, the concerns that I hear, and once again, not from the Atlantic Magazine, not from Salon.com, not from the Huffington Post, uh, not from John Kerry or Al Gore, is the infrastructure necessary, the supply chain. You're talking about cobalt and lithium and nickel eh, and a lot of other um, natural minerals that'll have to be extracted and, you know, transformed and shipped. And I mean, it's going to be unbelievably complicated and some of the some of some of the liberal thought leaders just say, "Did you read that article in the Atlantic magazine?" Yes, I did. Why aren't we doing that? I mean, why are we still burning fossil fuel? That person went to Davos, and they sat down with John Kerry and Al Gore, and damn it, Kerry and Gore told them what needed to happen, and we're still burning three thousand gallons of diesel, you know, powering a three thousand ton freight train five hundred miles down a track why are we still doing that please send that atlantic magazine article to you know the 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 ceo of csx and maybe the head man at delta and american airlines we've got to change this guys it is going to be so much more complicated than we ever imagined if we are indeed 
going to try to distort the market forces and force the economy to power itself by a way other than fossil fuels. I'm not saying, who am I to argue, that one day we won't burn fossil fuels to power our economy. I have no idea if that's the truth or not. But I think to, to, to believe that because someone sat down with John Kerry and Al Gore in Davos and they have the ability to write exquisitely on these issues and all of a sudden the, the public are believing that we just all of a sudden stop burning fossil fuel, we mine nickel and cobalt and aluminum and all these other lithium and all these other extractions. And No, I mean, th- there's a tremendous supply chain. It has to be dependable. It has to be affordable. Um, it, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, it's absurd to me. Uh, when, when, when Joe Biden says things like, in 10 years, we're going to be completely off fossil fuel, somebody in the media should, should say, Joe, can you take a couple of hours and explain to us? Because we've got about 100 questions that we believe are fundamental to this point you're trying to make. You're the leader of the free world, and a lot of what you say matters. So if you've got a couple of hours, not 10 minutes, we're not doing a soundbite, Joe. We want to sit down with you and your advisors, and we want to clearly understand how in 10 years you are going to power the largest economy in the world absent of fossil fuels. Uh, the, the absurdity of that. I mean, it, it's, it's bizarre and absurd. It's scary that there are people out there who believe that. It's not scary that Biden says it because he's a politician over the hill in cognitive decline. He might say anything. The scary part is how many of you Americans believe that we have a chance in 10 years to not burn fossil fuel. That is bizarre and absurd. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hello, Mike. Hey, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Tony had uh, some real points to make there. And uh, the situation is uh, uh, Gore and those guys and Kerry, they're lawyers. And there's a reason why you don't have lawyers working on your car. They, they, uh, it, it requires practical knowledge. And they don't have any practical knowledge about these things. And uh, I doubt if they'll ever get it. Uh, they 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 just want to scam people and they're like snake oil salesmen because uh, there's no such thing as green energy per se. You've got to get it from somewhere and with the best way we can get and most efficient way we can get energy right now is from oil and gas. But um, uh, I, I don't know. These people believe in magic elves and ghost guns and uh, gun violence. It's not gun violence. It's people violence. It's gang violence. And uh, the same same deal with the uh, fuel. You, uh, there are no magic elves to supri- supply that energy. We don't have warp drive or the, you know, singularity core of uh, Star Trek ships. We, uh, we have to work out a practical thing of accessibility to these uh, rare earths that you need to uh, operate and uh, manufacture these uh, very sophisticated electric cars that are going to have to be powered by some energy source. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, the point I've tried to make is there was a day the average American vehicle got 12 miles a gallon. Today, I mean, we got cafe standards, and California's got a certain blend of gasoline, and that number's all of a sudden 27 miles. So we've innovated. 
within the realm of natural, excuse me, within the realm of fossil fuels. We've gotten better. We've gotten more efficient. There may be a day, and Tesla may be the company, that, that, that allows us to leave behind passenger transportation. And I'm talking about, I don't know if you saw this yesterday or not, Reb. Um, what's, the, what's the most iconic American car? I mean, when you look at America, uh, it's probably the Chevrolet Corvette. Corvette. I mean, you're kind of nodding your head. You and I were yeah. watching CNBC yesterday. We're going to uh, be able to buy a completely electric Chevrolet Corvette in a couple of years. I think there's going to be an electrified model this year, somewhat of a hybrid. They call it electrified, but in essence, it's a, it's a hybrid model. But they say by 2024, you can buy an electric Chevrolet Corvette. So there is... Uh, an example of innovation, technology, um, c- kind of embracing the marketplace. But but we're, we're trying to so rush this along. And I think the absurdity is we're going to create more problems than we are solutions. I've read, not from the American Petroleum Institute, I've read from very reasonable sources and, and informed people that for 10%, I said this yesterday, for 10% of American vehicles to be electric, we need about, we've got about 90% of the supply chain that doesn't even exist. So, so we believe that we're going to build a supply chain and an infrastructure in, in five years, in three years, in two and a half years. What happens uh, to the convenience store owner? What happens to the people who still have gasoline? I mean, the absurdity of this, it is something that the marketplace will, will, will decide. And if Tesla or if Rivian or if Ford or if GM come out with a, if the electric Corvette is better than the gas-powered Corvette, you know what consumers who want Corvettes will do? They'll buy the electric. And then you got to figure out how to charge them. I mean, it's going to be an evolution. And once again, if there's anything that can allow us to not be uh, dependent upon people who don't care much for us to provide energy whether it's trucking or trains or planes or passenger cars or Corvettes, it doesn't matter to me. Um, if we can provide that independently and, and you know, absent of Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and Russia and Ukraine, what we all probably agree that's in our best interest. And, and I'm all for being ambitious. I mean, I think ambitious timeframes and ambitious timelines are something America should uh, be willing to encounter. What did Kennedy say? By the end of this century, we're going to put a man on the moon. I mean, America at its best is when it is aspirational and ambitious. But I think that the lunacy of the left, and, and here's where I, I, I really believe it boils down to this. I think if you get a reporter from the Atlantic Magazine, a reporter from the New York Times, John Kerry, Al Gore, and one of these green energy advocates in Davos, that kind of shapes the narrative. And there's nothing believable about that narrative. There's nothing pragmatic about that narrative. There's nothing practical about that narrative that they all come home and the Atlantic writes an article and the New York Times writes an article. And those of you who live in liberal la-la land kind of buy into that. And John Kerry gives a speech, and then, you know, uh, Al Gore goes to the United Nation and addresses, you know, the climate disaster, the impending climate. And we all just kind of, um, hey, wonder if they're telling the truth. No, they're not telling you the truth. None of those people are going to be responsible for disrupting um, the powering of our economy. If, if you want to hear anybody, listen to Elon Musk. I mean, listen to the chairman at Exxon. Yeah, of course they've got a dog in the fight. 
I mean, Musk wants you to drive electric cars. He wants you to drive a Tesla. Exxon's in the business of, but, but those guys, I mean, you, you can sort through where, where their spin and, and lobbying efforts are and where their genuine understanding of powering this global economy is. These are serious people. Kerry Gore, the writer for the Atlantic, the writer for the New York Times, uh, they're not serious people. So we're going to have a serious grown-up discussion about how to be innovative and powering our economy. Those people are not going to be allowed to be in the room. They're political hacks. They're being paid. They're seeking fame. They don't understand the fundamentals of what it takes to power an, uh, an economy, especially the largest economy on earth. And this is not about climate change to me. It's about being efficient and being, you know, better at it. And if we can power the economy and be less dependent upon people that don't like us, then let's, let's desire to do that. Let, let's try to make that happen. But let's not believe that the letters on a page of the Atlantic Magazine or the New York Times or a speech that John Kerry or Al Gore give. Those people mean so little in this debate. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're snake oil salesmen. That's exactly. But they've gotten fabulously wealthy. Sure good. they have. They played the American public, and the American public are stupid enough to be played. I mean, if you're really and truly, somebody asked John Kerry, what makes you someone we should listen to on changing the way we power our economy from fossil fuels to renewable energy? What, what qualifies you to be at a table? When we begin discussing uh, what it require, what is required to build a supply chain, you know, where do we get the cobalt and the lithium and the nickel from? Um, I mean, he's got political answers, but but we live in a country, Rev, and we revere this, and it's a little bit dangerous. We we somebody writes fabulously, or they're a great orator, and they carry the day. Man, it sounded like he knew what he was talking about. Did you read that article she wrote in Atlantic Magazine? They, they know nothing of what they're speaking of. There, there's probably 100 people in the, in the country that genuinely need to be in the room if we are going to have a, a free market attempt to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. None of the people that have the dominant force in this conversation now need to be in the room. Not a single person that is giving, you know, a, um, a loud and proud opinion needs to be allowed to express themselves. And, and look, I've, I've done uh, this for 10 years, and, and I know who the reliable sources are. I know who's full of it and who isn't. And, and, and some of these voices, and, you know, some come from the oil industry, some come from the political world, the lobbying industry, um, the, the green energy world. There's a lot of people out there that, that know what they're talking about. The people that are making their opinions heard, honestly and truly, do not. Let's take a break. Back in a minute. 90% of the people angry with Elon, or 90% of the Teslas ever sold were sold to people who are angry with Elon Musk today. The irony <laughs> oh, in the this. the irony, I love yeah, it. Yeah, we're going to save the planet together. Ah, he buys Twitter. Now he's, he's not, a, he's not a, um, for censorship, but he's for free speech. And uh, this has never been, in my humble opinion, I mean, Musk says it is, but this has never been a First Amendment issue. I mean, it is a free speech issue, and it is an issue of censorship. But it's never been a First Amendment uh, because the First Amendment does not apply to the private sector. Now, be sure, I think yesterday you even heard a little bit of Section 230, and the, the current president will be very nervous about, you know, um, misinformation and hate speech and uh, bigoted, racist 
uh, overtones. I mean, you hear a lot of that. In other words, you uh, by the end of the day today, if we've not already heard it, you'll hear some reference to 230, Section 230. Oh, you know, I think uh, Jen Psaki already brought it up yesterday. Within, an, really? within an hour or two of them announcing the deal was done, from the White House press podium, they start talking about Section 230, antitrust, all those buzzwords that they haven't mentioned while things were going their way with big tech. They did say, I, I looked during the break, that um, Twitter use is up about 3,000 today. Uh, it's only about 930 in the morning. The West Coast hadn't even opened up or woke up yet. It will be interesting to see uh, what the user rates are. You know, are people now um, you know, more interested in going on Twitter? It's, uh, it's kind of interesting, a meltdown. I went on uh, Twitter during the break. I want to read a few of the uh, folks I follow. I follow people on the conservative side and people on the other side. Um, Dr. Matt Walsh is a, well, this is uh, retweeted by Donald Trump Jr., but Dr. Matt Walsh is a women's studies scholar. He is a theocratic fascist, uh, best-selling children's author, nation's preeminent women's uh, studies scholar. Um, got to believe he's a liberal. He says, um, that's it. I'm out. Deactivating my account today. I can in good conscience use a platform that's run by a evil billionaire who makes electric cars. That's why <laughs> I'm sticking with Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, standing <laughs> on my principles. Hashtag goodbye Twitter, to which I'd say adios. My good friend, first of all, uh, my why do you bother? Friend. Why do you bother announcing your departure? Well, Just it's the Joe Scarborough. Get rid of it's your the account. Joe Scarborough syndrome. Go away. It's the Joe Scarborough syndrome. I Remember, know. Joe Scarborough wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal of which he announced he was departing or leaving the Republican Party, and nobody asked Joe Scarborough if he was leaving the Republican Party. There's a certain element of self-importance right. that some of these people are blinded by. Uh, it's just bizarre to me. And, how, and by the way, he announced he's going to another platform that is also owned by an evil billionaire, <laughs> by the way. Well, I mean, it depends on what side. Uh, Tim Carney, uh, what are you afraid Elon will do to Twitter to make it worse? I got a medical update on Edward Rosario from the uh, Atlanta Braves. Yeah, a, uh, if you're thinking of having a big guy, yeah, here you go, Tim Young. If you think you're having a bad day, imagine being a purple-haired fact checker at Twitter. <laughs> Find a new job. <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, uh, surprise guest for my Toronto trip. I want to see how one month trial fits in uh, trial by fire. That's David Portnoy. I want to find somebody else here. Elon Musk is the greatest living American. Uh, it's just like election wizard. It seems like a lot of people coming back to Twitter. Uh, my follower count has increased by more than a thousand today. Uh, Twitter has improved. Many people are returning, especially Trump voters. Thanks, Elon. Uh, and then you got Jim Jordan, uh, Will Kane, and just talking about uh, Ben Shapiro. Uh, all Twitter has to do is leave the Babylon Bee alone, um, mess around, and find out. So yeah, I mean, Twitter would be a um, an interesting study of social um, awareness today, tomorrow, and I would imagine the next few days how people absorb the information that Elon Musk is now uh, not now. I mean, he's not the owner yet. They made a deal. Um, I would imagine when the funds transfer, when the wire hits the bank, so to speak, well, it won't be a single wire. I wonder how they'll pay. How many shareholders are there of Twitter? I mean, that, that's kind There's of interesting lot. to me. I mean, yeah, Vanguard owns a lot of stock. Uh, some of the, uh, the, the public service employee union or investment fund in Florida owns a lot of stock in, um, in Twitter. Uh, 
But now, so there won't be a Twitter listed of the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. It's a private company. Um, you know what? We also won't know this. We, we won't be privileged now to what their books look like. Hmm. Hadn't thought of that. So all of a sudden, we did know everything there was to know about Twitter's financing because it was a publicly held company and they had certain disclosure requirements about, you know, revenue and liabilities. And um, I would imagine, I mean, there's not going to be a corporate board because it's a privately held company now. So the, the board members were making somewhere between three and $400,000 a year. They didn't have any stock in the company, but they were getting paid somewhere between three and $400,000 a year to sit on the board at Twitter. We know that will change. Um, what else changes? Don't have any idea. I mean, I don't think any of us have any idea what Elon Musk has up his sleeve when it comes to transforming Twitter, um, making Twitter a bigger force or factor in, um, in social media. And as he calls the digital, the, the de facto digital public square, 843-661-0937 is our number. And I, and I just say it's going to be entertaining and fun to watch. It will be a lot of fun to follow, especially if you fall into the political persuasion camp that you and I do. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in Florence. Hello, David. Hello. Hi, you're on the air. Hey, 843-661-0937 is our number. 843-661-0937 is our number. We're toying around. I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. But we're toying around with doing something different with our number. Can you, um, yeah? Can, can you can give the cliff note, but tell people what we're thinking about doing? <laughs> well, we've been giving the the local number for years, ever since the beginning of the show. So we've come up with the, what I call a vanity name number, and an easier, more flowing, and kind of fun way to tell people the number to call to get on the air. It's uh, and this plays off of something we've talked about a few times about the tell Ken callers that call our, our producer. Uh, Michael and start talking to him about, hey, tell Ken this, tell Ken that. You know, they did it with Cato famously. Uh, so we actually set up a vanity number. It's 866-TELL-KEN that rings into the studio to the same number. And so we will be transitioning over the next little while. So instead of giving the 843 number, it is a toll-free 866-TELL-KEN number to get on the air. Kind of have fun with that. It's the Mr. Sparky, no malarkey, listener call-in line to go on the air 866-TELL-KEN. So if you're listening now and you want to try to call and get on the air, make sure it still works. Uh, we tested it. It does work. 866-TELL-KEN will get you to the So studio. that will take the place of 843-661-0937? Yes. That means be, I'll have to reprogram you'll myself. Have to, have to change your habit there. Yeah. Um, but both will both will work, I believe. I don't know how much I like saying my name as part of the number, but because <laughs> I'm such a humble soul. Right. Humble servant. You know that. That's right. You know that as well as, um, as anybody does. Hey, um... Twitter, excuse me, Netflix, Twitter, Apple, Google, Facebook, um, north of 95% of all the political contributions made by those technology companies were made uh, to the Democrat candidate, not in the 2016, 2020 election, but in the 22 midterms. The elections were currently in the midst of um, 22, excuse me, 95% of the donations made by the employees of Netflix, Twitter, Apple, Google, Facebook have been made to Democrats. 90% of the contributions made by the employees of eBay, PayPal, Microsoft, and Amazon have been made uh, to the Democrat. 843, well, let me do this. Try, try it. Okay, one eight six six tell ken 
is the number one eight six six tell ken what, what is the numeric for tell ken i'll have to, have to uh, look figure that, that out here in just a second is somebody on the phone let's go there david in the pd hello david yeah i'll tell ken something hey how you doing buddy hey david uh here, here's the beauty about uh we're talking about ohio uh that's next week so make sure everybody knows about that i tried to do that yesterday uh but you know politics is all about momentum so this is the first, I mean, J.D. is going to be at the tip of the America first spear here. So and you got Pennsylvania and North Carolina or two weeks after that, May 17th. Uh, that's when you're going to have Ted Budd. I guess that's the uh, Republican that Trump's endorsed and Dr. Oz. Uh, so th- it's very important because we understand how politics and momentum is. So if JD loses or whatnot, that, the narrative you can imagine how that's going to be. And uh, you guys were talking to the professors about France and and I think about Ohio. And Dave will Dave will know this. Dave, you remember Kings Island, right? Oh, been there many times. I mean, Ken, you would love this place. This is like Ohio's version of uh, Carowinds and. The Beast is the famous roller coaster, Eiffel The Beast. Tower. Eiffel Tower. When we talk about France, there's a little miniature, well, it's a, a, a third-scale Eiffel Tower there. But actually, I, I met some folks last night from Ohio. They're from Chillicothe, Highway 23, and, and, and I love Ohio, man. Chillicothe, Circleville. And you take 23, you can go through Kentucky, through Paintsville, some of these places. That's where uh, Loretta Lynn, I think she's from that area. But these, this is America. Ohio is America. I mean, South Carolina, we're south. New Jersey is north. Ohio is America. Um, so the, the momentum, the, the, this is the main thing I'm trying to stress today. The momentum from this election next Tuesday is going to drive a lot of this narrative, and it's going to lead up to Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Eventually it's going to get to Georgia, but Next Tuesday is very important, so y'all better, you know, if you know anybody in Ohio, get them out to vote for J.D. Vance. Have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. I do think it kind of sets the tenor. I mean, I think it sends a message. If Vance endorsed by Trump, funded by Teal, does not win, um, the Trump support, the Trump endorsement has waned. Now, Gibbons is a good candidate. And uh, the Club for Growth is spending serious money uh, in the name of getting him elected. So, Gibbons, where's, where'd Mandel end up in this deal? Uh, is it Mandel? Maybe Mandel I'm thinking about. Let me look at the polling real quick. Let's do this, Mike. Let's take a break. I want to come back and look at the latest polling on the Ohio Senate race. See if I can find something uh, in a uh, real clear politics. I have some polling, but we may find some newer than that. Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. So the most recent polling I have in Ohio is April 21st, which would have been today's the 26th, what, Thursday? Thursday of last week. week. Um, The polling memo um, says that 53% of respondents in this poll were aware Trump had endorsed J.D. Vance. Um, Vance's numbers increased by 12 points after respondents were told of the endorsement. So no surprise Expect plenty of advertising in Ohio. Uh, remember Robert Cahaley said, the Trump endorsement doesn't mean much if you don't have the money to tell the people that Trump endorsed you in a primary. Um, but if you've got the money, and Peter Till has made sure that Vance has the money, um, you can get the message out. So here's where we are as we speak. This is the latest uh, Fabrizio Lee poll done for, uh, what did I say, Cleveland.com? Uh, the plane dealer. Yeah, the plane dealer. There you go. Um 
J.D. Vance at 25%, Mandel at 18%, Gibbons at 13%, Timken at 11%, Dolan at 9%. So J.D. Vance is up seven, Mandel stays the same, Gibbons loses five, Timken loses two, Dolan stays the same at um at nine. So Gibbons has taken the biggest hit. J.D. Vance has taken the biggest step forward, and Josh Mandel is still at about 18%. Wow. So that's... Um, so just a few weeks ago, we were talking about uh, Vance's number has numbers had dropped because he, he had made the comments about Ukraine. Didn't care what happened in Ukraine, and people took exception with that. Um, now, once again, this is a um, this is Ohio Senate poll um, done since the Trump endorsement, and and the, the key to this is the 25% for Vance are also those who have been reminded that Trump has endorsed J.D. Vance. So that's that's a critical part of this poll. And, I mean, it really is kind of what Russell Fry has to do in the 7th Congressional District. Russell Fry has been endorsed by Donald Trump. Does Russell have enough um, money to get the word out and tell people, the voters, the the general, uh, the, 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 the average Republican primary voter may or may not know that Russell Fry has been endorsed by Donald Trump, but this Ohio Senate seat is going to be a um, uh, kind of a precursor as to where we go from here. Um, and it looks to me like—I mean, anything can happen—and um, and we're still got a week. But it looks to me like J.D. Vance has the forward momentum and appears today uh, for the first time in the race. I mean, he's not been the favorite. It's a little bit like Chase Briscoe, uh, who wins the race. Wasn't it Chase Briscoe who won the race uh, on Sunday? Yeah, Sunday. No. I uh, wasn't um, Chase Briscoe. Chastain? Yeah. Was uh, uh. it Rob Chastain? Anyway, um, he led one lap, right. the final one. <laughs> yeah, the, the when only it counted. One. Yeah, so the only poll that matters is the last poll. Take a break. Back in a minute. 